Terry Lovelace is a six-year veteran of the U.S. Air Force. He has a bachelor's degree in psychology and a law degree from Western Michigan. His legal career began in private practice until his appointment as an assistant attorney general for the U.S. Territory of American Samoa. He also served as an assistant attorney general for the state of Vermont until his retirement in 2012. In June of 1977, Terry and his friend were abducted from Devil's Den State Park in northwest Arkansas. What followed were over 40 years of nightmares, phobias, and PTSD-like issues. In 2012, a routine leg x-ray discovered two anomalous objects in his leg. That event was the catalyst to write the books and to speak publicly about his experiences. For fear of losing his job and the respect of his peers in the legal community, Terry waited until 2018 to self-publish Incident at Devil's Den with the follow-up book, Devil's Den, The Reckoning. Upon release, both of them hit number one on the Amazon bestseller list. Since 2018, Terry has been a regular guest on over 100 radio and podcast shows. Coast to Coast with George Knapp and George Norrie, Earth Files with Linda Moulton Howell, Dreamland with Whitley Strieber, and Fade to Black with Jimmy Church. Since 2018, Terry has spoken at UFO Congress, Contact in the Desert, the Roswell UFO Festival, UFO Con, Alien Con, the Ascension Conference in Sedona, and the Ozark Digital Conference. His story was featured on an episode of the Travel Channel's My Horror Story. Well, thank you very much for that kind introduction. I appreciate it. I appreciate being here, and it's a privilege to be your first guest. Thank you very much. And we appreciate uh, it. Oh, and by way of introduction, and for those of who may not have heard from me or of me, my name is Terry Lovelace. I'm originally from St. Louis, Missouri. I was born in 1955. In 1973, I graduated from high school and enlisted in the United States Air Force, and not really out of any motivation for patriotism, more for uh, the GI Bill that would give me a free ticket to college. So, well, kind of free, but. That's why my dad joined. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I did six years, served six years honorably and uh, finished my enlistment in 1979, finished an uh, undergraduate degree uh, in psychology and went to law school at Western Michigan, uh, passed the bar and, and did some private practice work in Michigan and then was appointed as an assistant attorney general to the U.S. Territory of American Samoa which was a wonderful gig. Uh, the only U.S. territory south of the equator. Hmm. It's down 2,500 miles south of Hawaii, a little spit of an island about the size of Washington, D.C. So How, Did had, you live there? You lived there, right? I did. I lived there um, a little over five years. Oh, wow. I had a little government-supplied beach house and a car and, and uh, got to know Samoan people, got to even hmm. learn to speak the language a little bit. And oh, wow. uh, it was... Um, Beautiful people, beautiful place. Uh, mm -hmm. And from there, I went to the state of Vermont, uh, where I was state's attorney for their board of medical practice until I retired from the law early in 2012. January 2012, I officially retired and uh, moved to Dallas, where my wife and I have adult children and grandchildren. So my experiences with ET date back to, um, well, probably age four. Mm -hmm. When I was age eight in 1963, um, I saw a, well, the word UFO really wasn't part of, uh, it wasn't in the American vocabulary at the time. Mm -hmm. It was flying saucer, right? Mm -hmm. I was in uh, my backyard in St. Louis, Missouri, and I was 
I was playing with a bow and arrow. I was shooting arrows, target arrows into a bale of hay. And this is a, an urban area, South City, you know, row houses with, uh, it was a beautiful day in May, not a cloud in the sky. And there were people like cutting grass, hanging up laundry. There were dogs and cats, kids and cars and noise. And it was just um, a mm-hmm. lot of activity, typical nice May day. And I'm looking down and I'm loading an arrow into the notch of my bow. And I saw this perfectly circular shadow move across my feet. And instinctively, I looked straight up. And when I did, I saw the underside of this saucer. And it was, of course, perfectly round. And it was made of what looked like highly polished aluminum or God knows what. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe 30, I'm not great with distances, uh, but maybe 30 feet in diameter Mm -hmm. and maybe 50 feet over my head. Any sound? No, not a sound at all. As a matter of fact, there was a weird auditory change. And that was as soon as I laid eyes on this thing, it, it sounded like I pressed my hands firmly against my ears. It's like Mm -hmm. the sounds of the neighborhood were muted. You know, you, you and I discussed, we, I'm going to jump in right real quick, but you and I talked about this earlier about how, um, and I find it really interesting um, and other people, you know, there's so many other uh, encounters where people have um, talked about uh, the auditory changes. It sounds like someone mutes the planet. You know, I mean, I, I yes. my my encounter, I was in the South, you know, uh, standing next to a pond with toads croaking. And if you anyone from the South knows that those toads, when they get all together, it's real deafening. Yes. And and then, you know, so here you are experiencing the exact same thing, this encounter, and then at your other one. So um, I just find that so interesting how wide is it because time stops or slows down or they have to do something? You know what I mean? I don't know. That's another thing. It's like in order to make an appearance that one person or, or you know, not other people, do they have to slow things down? Because I, I noticed that there's other there's like a weird time, like. Other people have missing time. Other people have like a slow time where they felt kind of like dizzy or something or a dreamlike, you know, in a dreamlike state. And then all of a sudden the thing goes and everything's fine again. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I just well, to I, no, that. I think you I think you just described it perfectly. I, I, I do. It was it was weird. And, and like I said, like you alluded to, I, I, I would have the same experience in 1977 when we were camping in Devil's Den State Park because that's exactly what happened to us. We were talking across a campfire. The crickets and the tree frogs were so loud. We were having trouble carrying our voice across the campfire. And then all of a sudden, there's a lull in our conversation. And I noticed it, sound, it was like we were in a sound booth. Mm-hmm. I mean, had it not been for the crackling of the campfire, it would have been really silent. And that silence really unnerved me in 1977. Didn't bother me so much in 1963. I mean, I was eight years old. Didn't yeah, really. you're a little uh, kid. I was a but little isn't it interesting kid. how it's all of a sudden just out of the blue, though? Just like, boom, everything just goes quiet. Somebody like someone flipped a switch. Mm-hmm. And you know what I don't understand is, um, you know, I saw this flying saucer. And I should add that when I first laid eyes on it, I was just awestruck. I thought it was just the absolute most gorgeous thing I'd ever seen in my life. I mean, the word sexy wasn't in my vocabulary. <laughs> I think I called it bitching or something. <laughs> but I thought that it was, uh, I mean, it, it had that vibe to it that like a new Alfa Romero on a showroom floor would have. Yeah, like it an old Jaguar too. or Corvette or something. You know, like a whole old, old car. Yeah. Yeah. It was just 
Wow. <laughs> and uh, I don't get how I saw this thing in my backyard with probably 50 people within eyesight of me and no one else saw it. And the same thing happened in 1977. In 1977, uh, my friend Toby and I, we were in a very remote location. But the thing that we saw was so big uh, and so lit up that it should have been seen in five counties. And yeah, and I'm kind of wondering, and that's another question I want to, when we get to that part of the story, I, I want to definitely hit that point where it's like, how did, did, did other people see it? Were there other encounters in that area that were recorded? Were there 911 calls? Um, did the military see something? And that's how they knew something was up with you guys. Like they saw you guys trespassing and then they kind of were like, okay, they were here when this thing was here. So they 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 must have seen something maybe you know was it like that yeah I, you know it, it it's weird i don't know how they knew but they knew mm-hmm. the air force knew um, and they they and they and and they they i mean when they questioned you guys in the hospital they were alluding to like we know something weird happened and i i me i've always thought when i heard every time i hear your story and i hear that part of the story i always think how they they must have seen something or picked up something on radar and they knew you guys were right at that point and they thought something happened here and maybe i don't know i don't know that's oh my my that's what i add to the story when i hear your story because i'm thinking i bet they saw something you know i bet they knew you know there, there there are two assumptions you can make and that is that when toby and i left we were so scared and so hurt i mean we left we left our tent we left his nice coleman cooler mm-hmm. we left his backpack um you know, air mattresses, blankets, everything. We left everything. I took my wallet and my keys and was glad to get out of there with my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that um, because we had trespassed, we took down a chain that had been across the road with this really sternly worded keep out, do not enter verbiage on it. And we had no idea, no one. We thought it might be like a nature preserve or something, but the mm-hmm. place where we stayed is not actually even in Devilston State Park. It's a strip of federally owned land. It's owned by the Bureau of Land Management and leased to a private individual. Uh, mm-hmm. I researched the, the, the recorder of deeds, registry of deeds office, mm-hmm. and that's, that's still federal land. It's still federal land, still off, off limits today. And, you know, I didn't bother looking for it on Google Earth because I thought, you know, this place has to be covered with 40-year-old mature trees by now. But it's not. It's... Uh, it's the same plateau we stayed at, and the yeah. top of the plateau is level with the surrounding with the treetops of the surrounding forest. So you can't see it unless you're right up on it. Mm-hmm. And um, I did a show for Astonishing Legends, and the two guys, uh, and I'm embarrassed I forget their names. They were very kind. They did some research, and based on what. I described in my book, I described it as being kind of horseshoe shaped. I cut, we couldn't see it from above, obviously, but we walked the perimeter of it. And uh, they found it on Google Earth and sent me a copy of it from above, from the satellite imagery above. It looks just like, it looks very much like a triangle. Dig this, when we were there, um, the grass had been cut and it was about six inches high. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't think anything strange about it at the time. But, you know, why would you go, why would the U.S. government 
for 50 years, spend money for a tractor on a dirt road to climb this steep hill to get on top of this plateau and keep it clear cut so trees don't grow on it. Why would they spend the money for 50 years to do that? It's an interesting, it's an interesting question. I posted them to my Facebook page and I got a follower who is a landscaper down in Alabama and he looked at them and he was able to enlarge the image. And he says, yeah, he says, I can see that these are, this area is clear cut. He said with a, with a farm tractor and a brush hog. I didn't mm -hmm. know what a brush hog was. Mm -hmm. Contrary up a little weird mental image, but yeah. Uh, I guess it's a big mower deck that you pull behind a farm. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, he says, yeah, he says, somebody goes up there and cuts it and never allows it to get past about six inches in height. So they're cutting the grass on top of this meadow in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, you know, when I wrote Devil's Den um, in 2017, uh, I subscribed to a couple of the local papers out of Russellville, Winslow, uh, and the Arkansas uh, Gazette. And I, I looked for um, uh, stories relating to Devil's Den. Mm -hmm. And I found one in early uh, 2017, there was a 28 year old young woman, young mother named Monica Murphy, who went missing in Devil's Den State Park. And uh, she was a local, I don't think she was from Winslow, but she was local and was missing for a week. And they found her body at the base of a hundred foot cliff. Hmm. And the local medical examiner ruled it a suicide. So, but who knows? That's all. That's all I know. I tried to yeah. get, I tried to get copies of the, uh, of the autopsy report, but wasn't wasn't able to pull that off. That's interesting. I mean, we're we're getting into David Pol Politis. Uh, I think that's how you say his name. Territory. Oh, when it comes to disappearances and stuff like that, it's it's um that's very interesting as well. I hope to have him on the show. But um, but yeah um. These these missing these people are like there was that case that I have, I've heard you talk about. And we were talking about another case of how people um, with with people right there uh, end up just d vanishing into thin air and yeah. or and or maybe not sometimes reappearing a week later. 1946 I mean, case of Catherine Van Ost, mm -hmm. a six year old girl goes missing from. Uh, she's at the camper with, you know, mom's putting breakfast on the picnic table and dad's still sleeping and she and her two brothers are running around the camper and then suddenly she's gone. And she was missing for seven days. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the seventh day, they were going to transition from a rescue to a recovery. Mm -hmm. And because they had 2,500 volunteers, they had volunteers from University of Arkansas from the uh, federal park on the other side, they had the federal uh, park rangers and police departments from all over. Uh, and this was the last day of the search. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, a um, young man named Porter Chadwick was walking on top of this plateau, this just steep limestone bluff that was several miles from the campsite and 790 feet in elevation. So she would have had to walk like a four mile zigzag path yeah. to safely reach the top of this place. Plus, it had been searched twice already. And Porter Chadwick made his way up and uh, walking around the top of this thing, he called out Catherine and she walked out from under a limestone overhang and said, here I am. And he just, he <laughs> yeah. just broke down and he said, my God, where have you been? 
And she says, I don't know. I woke up here this morning. And I just was waiting for you to come get me. Yeah, I wish they I wish they could have uh, maybe checked her like besides checking the fact that she was, you know, bathed and whatnot. If maybe her clothes were in disarray or was 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 that mentioned at all? Because your socks were on backwards or sideways. No, she was wearing she was wearing nothing but a bathing suit and flip flops. Mm. Uh, how, how could she get that net cross that terrain and flip flops? It's not. I, possible. It's, yeah, I know. And, and not be um, at least um, sunburned or something. You know what I mean? From from being seven days out. That's she had a few bug bites on her legs, but she was well hydrated, not sunburned. Her mother said that her hair smelled clean like it did the from the mm-hmm. shampoo the evening before. So, and she hadn't lost an ounce of weight, uh, checked her out medically. What's interesting, if you go to the, uh, and it's easily found on the internet, the uh, piece from the Pittsburgh Press, uh, it says that uh, Catherine Van Alst's mother was quoted as saying that when asked about her daughter's mood, she described it as being, quote, eerily calm. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it seems kind of just an odd, an odd quote to me. But yeah, yeah, her mom noticed it. And and to go back to your story, you and Toby, uh, and also when you saw the the one when you were eight was an eerily calm, right? You 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 didn't you weren't alarmed. You were just like, oh, cool. Look at that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And did you when you saw that, did it what did it do exactly? It passed over. Did it pass over you and and then it took off or? It was when I saw the saucer in 1963, I looked up at it. And again, I was just awestruck. I just thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I just tried to tried to drink in every square centimeter of it with my eyes and uh you know, I had put together a few model airplanes as a kid, and I'm thinking there should be rivets, there should be seams, mm-hmm. you know, there should be some kind of uh, emblem stating, you know, CCCP or USAF or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, there was nothing. And I remember feeling very disappointed that I couldn't see the top side of it. And while I'm in this kind of weird altered state, because of the auditory changes and because of being just so awestruck at the sight of this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just watching it and it wobbles a little bit in the breeze. I dropped my bow and arrow and I decided the grass had just been cut and I decided to lie down on the grass. And the, the rationale for that was, oh, I can get a much better look at this if I lie down on the grass. Mm. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, but that's what I did, and I had um, I had a researcher, uh, UFO researcher named Lorian Fenton, told me she said that she doesn't think I laid down on the grass. And to be honest, I can't recall laying down on the grass. I can recall being on the grass and looking mm-hmm. up. And she says they probably took you up and then drop you back down. That's what I was thinking. Do you do you have any? Um, I know you're only eight at this point, but I mean, did you did you did you have any kind of lost time that you know of? Not that I know of. Um, but that, you know, that's an interesting question because I don't know if this happened over the span of five minutes or 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. It seemed like five minutes. Um, 
Oh, it always does. Every time you talk to someone, they're like, well, it, it was just a, like a couple of minutes ago, right? And they're like, no, you've been gone six hours, you know? Yeah. I so experienced I, two hours of, uh, I'll get into that later, but I experienced two hours of missing time in 1987 on a motorcycle ride. And I can tell you that was a seamless, I mean, it's as if your life is a, a role of a real a movie film and somebody with scissors just cuts out a 30 foot stretch and then, you know, splices Twice. the ends together. It's yeah. seamless, absolutely seamless. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's meant to be that way. And you and I, and uh, we'll get back to the, uh, your store, but I mean, you and I talked again before and you being a medic, I told you, I, I said, you know, cause my mother had an encounter very similar where she was in a dreamlike state where she was up in this ship and she was um, kind of in this sort of dreamy, like, Oh, look at this you know she had a gray that was actually showing her around and she was in a dreamlike state and you and you talked about how you and toby were kind of in that same sort of state in a way um and yeah, yeah and how how that we, we talked about like when people <laughs> i know this sounds weird but when people get colonoscopies or other procedures they 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 give them like a twilight uh type anesthesia where it doesn't knock them out it's not general anesthesia it doesn't knock them out completely but it um it, it it puts you in kind of like a dreamy like you know and and you you then told me you said oh yeah i know the name of that which i forgot and then you told me you said it's also an amnesiac is that what you yes, said it's an amnesiac it's it's technified it's technically classified as a hypnotic and with an amnesiac quality to it and the drug is called versed hmm interesting so I yeah, had I mentioned that to you, and I, yeah, yeah, I mentioned that to you, and then you said that, and I was just like, that's that's really strange because I've I've heard my mom's story, your story, and countless others where people have been in a dreamlike state, and then they remember chunks like you do, chunks of of the thing like my mom, and um and then um then or then nothing at all. When you were on the grass, was it still over you? Yes, when it, when I was lying in the grass, I was just fixated on it. Again, it, it had this um, this really cool vibe from it, and I was just delighted to see it. I was just mm -hmm. so happy to see it. I felt privileged to see it. Mm -hmm. And it's um, it's wobbling a little bit in the breeze. And I'm just mesmerized by it. And I'm looking at it. I'm watching it. And then after some time, it just kind of does this list to starboard a little bit and shoots off from zero to 500 miles an hour like that and disappears in a hole in the sky. I mean, mm -hmm. there were no clouds, there was no physical hole in the sky, but mm -hmm. I always remember that spot in the sky where it, where it vanished. Mm -hmm. And for years after that, every time I went in the backyard, my eyes went right to that, to that spot, mm -hmm. you know, always wondering, are they going to come back and see me again? And they did. They did. Yes. Three years later, or women. 1968, 1966. Eight, nine, ten. Yeah, yeah, three years later when yeah. I was 11. So, do you feel like, uh, just a little side note before we get into that next encounter, do, do you do you feel like, I, I know this sounds strange, but I have to ask it. I mean, do you feel like you were chosen? Great question. It's a perfect question. Oh, yeah, I do. You know what happened was I, I there was a second time. And uh, I was 11 years old. I was in my bed, sound asleep. It was the middle of January. It was cold outside like crazy, like negative below zero cold. 
Um, and uh, we lived in this drafty old house. I was on the second floor and there were Venetian blinds, old school Venetian blinds, the big wide ones mm -hmm. and uh, heavy drapes on the windows to keep out the cold because the windows leaked. And I woke up to these flashing lights in my room coming through the heavy draperies. And again, I wasn't in that, uh, I was in that semi-sedated mindset still. I, I woke up, I saw the lights, I didn't freak out. I didn't yell, mom, I didn't. Uh, and you know, the whole house was quiet. You know, the dog wasn't upset. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I, I saw these lights and I thought, it's gotta be a fire truck, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe the house across the street's on fire, cool. You know? <laughs> So I get up and I pull I pull the blinds back and I pull open the Venetian blinds and I look out and right outside my second story window. I mean, if I could have opened the window, I could have stepped out onto the top of the thing. Mm -hmm. It was that close. It was that close. And underneath was this huge billowing cloud of what looked like steam. I didn't hear anything. Um, and there was a small dome in the middle of the of the saucer. And I remember thinking how great it was that I could see the top of it because I was really disappointed that I didn't get a chance to, you know, three years earlier. Mm -hmm. And that was the source of the flashing lights was this was this dome that was on top. But, mm -hmm. you know, there was a cartoon Bugs Bunny cartoons were popular in the mm -hmm. day. And there's a line from the Bugs Bunny cartoon series uh, that Bugs Bunny said in probably 50 episodes. And he always made this joke about making a wrong turn in Albuquerque and getting <laughs> yeah. lost. Have you heard that? <laughs> I remember that one. Yeah. And I, it, you know, at age 11, my first thought was they're here to see me, you know, most was people, that a knowing, did you know that? Or did you just, uh, no, I knew that my first thought was they didn't make a wrong turn in Albuquerque. They're here on purpose. They're here to see me. And, uh, for that reason, I didn't feel the need to get anybody else involved in it because when I, when I, when I yelled from my mother, when I was eight years old and said, I saw a flying saucer, you know, that, that did not end well. That didn't go over real well. And mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, my dad talked to me and said, look, you can't tell people, you will not tell people that you yeah. saw a flying saucer. They'll think there's something wrong with you. They'll run us out of town. Yeah. Yeah, they'll think there's something wrong with us. That was that whole 1960s conformity thing. Well, as as an 11 year old, and you're looking at this, are you remembering the encounter when you were eight? Are you yeah. looking like, oh, they they came back to see me? Hey, you know. That's exactly what I was remembering. That's what you were thinking, because I'm I'm trying to get into your head at those moments. And you know, I I um, these these two incidents are kind of separate and aside from in my book. Um, I talk about the monkey men. Yeah. You were what, four then? The monkey men entered my life at age four and were in my life intermittently till about age nine. And, uh, and they only came at night, right? They only came at night. They came out of the shadows. And um, if we have time, um, I'd like to read a, a fairly short poem that I wrote. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. About the monkey men, because it really, in a few stanzas, sums up everything that happened. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about them because, um, you know, your your technical like sort of UFO encounter happened at eight. The first one, 
I wanted to get into the monkey men just to see what did they look like, sound like, what did they do? The monkey men were gone when I was age nine. Hmm. And I had, I had, you know, no more monkey experiences until I was 22. So I had, or no more, no more experience really with the paranormal. After, Mm -hmm. after that sighting at age 11, uh, there was 11 years of hiatus that where I had nothing uh, in my life paranormal at all. Mm-hmm. So um, I wrote this poem um, in high school in literature class when I was 18. And um, I felt really moved to write it. Uh, my, I don't think my teacher understood it, but I didn't care. <laughs> um, I got an A, so you know, who cares? <laughs> She's just like, give him an A. You just <laughs> Don't yeah. talk about this anymore. <laughs> Well, you know what? At 18, I felt like I was grown and I felt like the monkey men were just history. I thought mm-hmm. I'd live the rest of my life and never have to run in with this, have another run in with this stuff again. Mm, and then they come back at 22. And then they came back at 22. Surprise. Interesting. So, anyway, here's my poem. It's called Four Grinning Monkeys. Shadows from the hallway crept into my room. Long the monkey men, too, I assume. Never before in life had I seen a creature that grinned before I could scream. A candle's flame dances before it grows dim. One monkey man's shadow has slowly crept in on his knees and with ease and is perched on the edge of my bed, if you please. The silence was broken one inch from my ear as the monkey man whispered, my boy, I'm right here. Now monkeys were four and were masked to deceive children and even grown men, if you please. I started to tremble and covered my head, but monkeys, all four, crept close to my bed. Outside of my covers, four peeled with the light. These monkey men here, will they take me this night? Faces with grins approached me to say, Terry, won't you come with us and play? Come with us now, give us your hand, and we'll take you to an unbelievable land. You may not remember the last time or when, but come with us now and and you'll see it again. But I said, I know you are not what you seem, and if you are real, then why can't I scream? This night the monkey men take me with ease, and I'm but a terrified child, if you please. These things are not men that are born of this earth. Near a star to the west is the place of their birth. It matters not what I do or say. Tonight, like the others, they'll take me away. Where shall we go, and how long must I stay? Tell me, you four, tell me now, I do pray. We're going home, Terry. There's no reason for gloom. See that star over there just east of your moon? We traverse great distance, pick you up, and we're gone to return you to bed before breaks the dawn. We must take from you blood and things we do need. Many entities one day will be born of your seed. When I'm taken away, can my mom hear my calls across all of space through brick and through walls? Will she think that I'm lost? or been seized from my bed? Will she worry I suffer or fear I am dead? Will she cry and sob while we go and play if I don't return before dawn breaks the day? And when I return, will I come back whole or will sinister deeds take some terrible toll? We'll soon arrive at a place we do dwell. You'll see it is neither a heaven nor hell. A place with two suns lights our day, a place that is different but also the same. The years have passed quickly as life slips my grasp. Pray tell me, why did you hurt me, I ask. 
From earth you take away women and men and tag us and track us toward what an end. We are sentient beings that feel self-aware, but you are just monkeys and monkeys don't care. <laughs> As a child, I had no voice to say what may come to pass on some future day. I have the need and the right to know what was done to me so many years ago. Surely you knew that one day I'd be grown, no longer helpless, no longer alone. Did you not believe I'd live to confess the memories you stole or failed to suppress? So flawed was your sinister plan ill-conceived that others first scoffed, but then came to believe. I swear by all that is holy and all that is right, the next time you come to take me at night, when four little monkeys crouch near my bed, I'll take my revolver and shoot them all dead. Dear God, Terry, <laughs> you were foretelling your future. You, you, that you were only 18 and you, you wrote all of that. So you, how did you, when you were writing that, were you writing, I how was, was that coming? You were crying. Cause I was about to cry. Cause it sounded so like a terrified child. Yeah, writing it's, about it's a motive for me to read. I, I have difficulty reading it sometimes, but I think it succinctly sums up so much of what happened, the emotions and the uh, terror. Yeah, I, the, I, I went through a plethora of emotions as you were reading. I was just shocked. I was I was trying not to make faces, but I couldn't help it. I'm, I'm very autistic, so I'm very animated at times. And um, so um, here you were. I, I felt terror. I felt fear. I felt dread. I felt, um, you know, just... Uh, like violated, you know, that violation, you know, I, I felt so much, but I felt a lot of terror as you were reading that. And I'm just, I'm just amazed at it at 18 here. You had your last encounter at, well, you had to get your, your last encounter at 11. Yeah, and then, ago. yeah. Then, then all of a sudden at 18, you're, you're just coming out with all of this. Um, that's, is that repressed memories coming out? You know what I mean? As you, as you wrote it, you said you were, did you cry when you wrote it? I did. I did. I wrote it in my bedroom at night. Cause you were getting it all out finally. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's weird when I reflect back on that. Um, you know, I've always had decent writing skills. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, very, very much so. But I, I felt like when I wrote that, that I had help or it was coming from somewhere. It was, yeah. it was a deeply emotive experience writing that. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I couldn't read it out loud. I, I, for years, I couldn't read it out loud. Matter of fact, that, that had been stored in a, in a, uh, thank God I saved it. It had been stored in a storage locker up in Northern Michigan. Oh, wow. And uh, went up in 2017 and retrieved it when I wrote this book. I'm so I'm so glad you printed that because that that says to me that one bit says a lot that says, um, you know, as people going through therapy from trauma, you know, are asked to write out their experiences will go through the exact same thing, you know, a plethora of emotions, they have to kind of almost relive it. And, um, you know, they will cry. And so as, as you were saying, you know, as you were telling this, I, I just, I, that's what I felt too. And I, I saw that, I saw it on you, I think picked up on you in a way where it was, it was just, it sounded like a terrified child, traumatized, recounting their, you know, experiences. I mean, that's, it was very powerful. Thank you for reading that. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. So, so going back to the monkey men, do you, do you remember what they looked like? Do you remember, did they have a sound? Did, was there a particular way that they came at you? Um, because I had a personal experience with something that was monkey-ish. 
it was impish anyway. Um, but I, I'm really interested in these monkey men. Um, you know, did they, what did they sound like? What did they do? Did they really speak to you audibly? Um, did you have nightmares before or after? Um, was there any sort of pre like precursor? Like, did you know when they were going to show up? They were seeing me as early as age four. Um, I don't have great memories from age four, but I have a handful. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's what would happen. I would be asleep in my room. Uh, I had the up, I have an upstairs bedroom and across the hallway, my sisters shared a room and, uh, they never heard or, or they claimed they never heard or saw a thing. Mm-hmm. Now, my, my sister made that admission that, you know, that she regretted she couldn't be a more help to me when they couldn't find me in the house and the lights would come through the window. But Something happened. Um, what I would experience would be, you know, my room wasn't totally dark. Um, it was on the second floor and we lived in the city. So there were streetlights uh, parallel with my window. So my, there was a fair amount of light coming in my lindo- window, but I had, I had drapes and stuff to keep the lights out. So it was lit, but just a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. just a little bit, just enough to cast a shadow. Mm-hmm. And these things would manifest, um, I would wake up with this feeling of dread and I, you know, that, that feeling with their eyes watching me, their mm-hmm. eyes on me. So I'd wake up with that feeling and not be able to, not be able to uh, suppress it. And I'd wake up and uh, I would see movement out of the corner of my eye at first. It was never full on facial uh, it would it would start off with motion from the side of my uh, the side of my eye. So I turned my head real quick and uh, you know didn't see anything. And then the other way. And Were then you I paralyzed at all? Could you move? I could move just fine. Okay. And uh, then there would be like this. Uh, the shadows would all move, uh, kind of like a, a short twirling kind of thing. Like they all moved kind of in unison. Mm-hmm. And then these four, I know, and I know that this sounds outrageous, but uh, uh, let me just say here that in those now 1,700 emails that I've received from people who shared their experiences with me, mm-hmm. I've talked to people who have had owls, lots of owls, Disney characters, clowns. I had a cousin who had problems with, the same time I'm going through this with the monkey man, he had these problems with little clowns, circus clowns coming into his room. Mm-hmm. And people have seen orbs of light, deer. Uh, I talked to a kid down in El Paso who's in my second book uh, who saw a two-foot-tall walking uh, possum that he said walked like a man and spoke to him telepathically. Interesting. Uh, And and a bunch of other examples. Yeah. You wonder if if it's the same entity taking on a form maybe that would be more relaxing. I don't know. Or, no, you know, I think you're right on. Spot more on. friendly. Yeah. The most benign. They, they appear yeah. in the form the child will see as most benign. That's mm-hmm. that's what I believe. Because when I first saw these things, I wasn't afraid. Mm-hmm. I thought they were kind of comical. And uh, I would, the old like the old thing goes, you know, I really would pinch myself. I'd blink and make sure that I'm not asleep. And I wasn't asleep. I'm certain I wasn't asleep. Mm-hmm. And these you just form- know. I, yeah, I know. And my memory is clear. And these four little monkeys would step out and they'd walk near my bed. Now I see them. They had like paper plate mask. Mm. Weird. But they had masks that they wore over their face. And they had big round holes cut for eyes. 
and I saw large yellow eyes. And then there was a painted on grin, smile on this paper, like paper plate, like thing. I don't know how it was attached to their face, but it was a mask. Obviously it was a mask. But monkey body. But a monkey body complete with a long tail and monkey paws. And uh, I always picture them in being in these little red circus uh, (laughs) tuxedo top things. Uh And I don't think that. I don't think that they were. I don't think that I saw them, of course. that was a, This is all a screen memory. I saw them in the way they projected their image into my mm-hmm. mind. And uh, matter of fact, one of the persistent nightmares I've had for 44, 41, a long time, has, mm-hmm. been, <laughs> has been that um, because the monkey that was closest to the head of my bed would always hold out this monkey paw to me. And say to me, Terry, like I said in the poem, Terry, won't you come with us? Really? And uh, yeah, like asking permission, which was weird. And, you know, I I recall lots of times going through this mental exercise. Should I go with them or not? Had I gone with them before? Yeah, I think I had. And, um, but I, in my, in these nightmares that I have, uh, and I still have them to this day, not, not often, fortunately, but I, I'm back. I'm nine, eight, seven, six years old, whatever, in my room in St. Louis, Missouri, and the monkeys are in my room, and it's 2 a.m., and the monkey holds out its paw to me and says, won't you come with us? And in the dream, it's not a paw at all. When I look at it, it's four long, ugly fingers, mm. and I just flip out. I just mm-hmm. I just flip out in my sleep. Yeah. So they, um, if I went with them, uh, all I would rem- remember was taking the paw into my hand. Mm-hmm. And then I would be, I don't have many memories of this, but I know where we went. And I would be in this round domed room. And there would be other children there. But they weren't children that I knew from daycare. They weren't from school. They weren't from the neighborhood. I have no idea who these kids were. But they were the same kids there every time. And, uh, and I knew them. And when I was in this room where they took us, there was always a woman there and I called her Sue. And I called her Sue because in back of us, uh, where we live in the home in back of us, there was a um, middle-aged Japanese woman who had married a GI uh, who was stationed in Japan. And then he moved stateside, she got her citizenship and they lived in back of us. And then her husband passed away and she was there by herself. Mm. And um, so this woman that I would see in this room where they took us, uh, she reminded me of Sue because she had kind of almond Asian eyes. Mm -hmm. So I called her Sue and she spoke to us and we spoke to her and we spoke, we kids spoke to one another telepathically. And it's weird because it was the most natural thing in the world. It Mm -hmm. felt, uh, and then I I couldn't understand why I couldn't do it back at home. Um, Yeah. But I'd I'd learned many years later, there's a good reason why human beings don't speak telepathically. (laughs) Um, Right. We've got all kinds of stuff going on up here. Best you don't know. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. So so you know what, you know, I want to ask is, do you think Sue and Betty, are the same. They are one and the same person, one and the same entity. Yeah. 
and I feel a very strong uh, affection for her uh, in a maternal sense. Well, she uh, cared for you as a child in, in this space. Yeah. You know. So and, you, uh, you know, I don't know if when I see Sue, am I actually seeing Sue? I mean, mm-hmm. is that what she really looks like? I don't even know. Right. But in my mind, I'm, I'm settled with what I see. I'm okay with it, whatever, either way that it is. And, is uh, it like a mental association? She looks like Sue, so I'm going to call her Sue. Or was it a feeling that, oh, she feels like this person feels like Sue, like this lady? Well, what happened was I, I, uh, I hadn't seen her in years. And uh, in 2017, when I was writing my book, I was, um, this is a longer story I'll get into later, but I had made an uh, arrangement to have the thing above my knee right. removed surgically by a surgeon in Tijuana because I could not get uh, a cardiac clearance letter because of my heart in this country to authorize the surgery. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is simple. It's, it's the standard of care medically in this country is that it's a risk versus benefit analysis. So, you know, if you've got something you've had in your body for 40 years and it's not caused you any trouble. Just leave it. Leave it because it's not worth the risk of infection or the risk of anesthesia. Uh, you know, there are a lot of risk factors that go along with surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like the one cardio, I talked to five cardiologists, three in the VA system, because that's where I get my health care. And mm-hmm. uh, two I paid for on my dime outside the system. And I got the same answer every time. And, and that wasn't, you know, look, you know, there are 500,000 GIs, you know, veterans out there that have metal in their bodies from, you know, Iraq mm-hmm. or Korea or wherever, and they want it out of their bodies too. Yeah. But, you know, they don't take it out. If it's not, yeah. if it's it's not, not causing harm, let it lie. Right. So. So you, uh, you think Sue and Betty are the same? No uh, question in my mind. Uh, interesting. Because um, I wondered about that. Um and so going back to the monkey men, is there anything else that you can add to this? Um, you said they would extend your, you know, their, their paw to you, this one, and you would go with them. You would be in this, you know, room with these children and Sue. Do you remember anything else? Do you remember telling them to leave you alone? Do you, would you go with them willingly? Like you said, you would go back and forth, but um, when did this end? Did it end? And did you ever kind of notice like, oh, I haven't seen them in a while. It ended when I was age nine. I just turned age nine and I had a unique experience, uh, an experience very much like the one I had in 1977 where uh, the monkey man came and took me and uh, there was no discussion about it was, it, this was a, they just snatched me and took me. Mm-hmm. And I was in a, um, a room with a medical table hmm. and they did something medically to me that hurt. And I remember screaming for Sue and Sue never came. Oh, okay. And that was my, that was my final experience uh, with them. You know, I had an experience with a sauce flying saucer at 11, but you know, maybe it was my age, but I could not make the connection between the saucers and the monkey men and Sue. Mm -hmm. The two were just not, they just didn't feel like they were connected at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're so young. It was, it was, I'm sure. And, and I know having lots of paranormal encounters, it's so bewildering at that age, you know, uh, you, you have no idea what you're dealing with. And when I was a kid, I didn't know what they were. I, I couldn't say shadow men. I was born in 77. So, um, 
you know, I, 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 I couldn't articulate what, what I was going through. So, you know, everyone was, I was, and I would just call them monsters because I didn't monsters. know what else to call them. That's yeah. exactly what I called them. That's mm-hmm. what I thought of them. I thought of them as monsters. That's interesting. Yeah. The only, the only thing I thought of, you know, I, I, unfortunately I'd seen a few horror movies when I was a kid, a little kid. Um, yeah. And then all of a sudden it was just every, every, every paranormal terrifying thing that happened to me. It was the, the monsters came back. The monsters showed, you know, the monsters were pulling at my feet. I used to, I used to, when I was three years old, I used to have something pull at my feet with long fingernails and I used to call it the foot monster. And, uh, and of course everyone thought that was hilarious and cute. And I was like, no, I'm serious. You know, I was a little kid and it was, you know, horribly traumatizing, but that's as a kid, your, you, your vocabulary and your length of experience in life is just so short that at that point it's just monsters, you know, and yes. And so here, here you had this experience at, at nine and then the monkey men go away for a while. Yeah. And then you're 18 and you, you write this gut wrenching, heart wrenching, terror filled, in my opinion, poem, you know, that was just, it sounds so much like a a trauma victim recounting their experience. in in my opinion, I mean, it just, it sounds very much like that. I wanted to cry when you were reading it. Um, because there was a lot of emotion spilling forth, you know, from that. And um, that can only come from, I think, personal experience, personal trauma, you know. Um, so we're going here from nine to 11. You have this kind of cool encounter uh, with a spaceship that you can see out your window. And do you remember anything else from that? Like the, you, you said, you said yeah. at one point, yeah, that it was so there bright you could look at it. Yeah, there is something interesting about that. I, I neglected to say. Um, there was a noise. This was this. Well, the first one that I saw, I never heard a noise. This time, I could hear a um, a weird droning like noise, similar to what I heard uh, in 1977 when I woke up. And uh, there was also a vibration in my room mm. uh, because I had I had a desk near the window, and um, I had little plastic model airplanes on this desk and they were vibrating and one had fallen off onto the floor. And while I was standing there looking at this thing, feeling very satisfied, Mm -hmm. I, uh, I had my, it was kind of awkward. I had my fingers here spreading apart the Venetian blinds and my hand here holding this heavy drapery. So what I did was to get a hands-free view, I took the drapery and I plugged it, jammed it into the Venetian blind so that I could sit there, stand there, you know, hands free and have a view of this thing. Mm-hmm. And I watched it for, I don't know how long, you know, it seemed like, of course, it seemed like five minutes, you mm-hmm. know, standard answer. And I felt very satisfied. Um, and I just turned around and went back to bed. I went back to bed and it's still outside my window and the lights are still flashing, but I went back to bed and went back to sleep and slept soundly. I got up the next morning and I didn't initially remember even seeing it. I got up and then when I turned to the window, because remember the morning sun was bright, I saw the window and it all came flooding back. And uh, I looked and there was a little blue Corsair airplane model on the floor. And... Mm -hmm. You know, so it wasn't a dream. It really it did happen. Yeah, I had validation. I had confirmation that this really did happen. And 
I felt, uh, and I never told a soul, you know, I went down to Mm -hmm. breakfast in the morning and I'm like, hey, anybody see those lights last night? No, must have been a fire truck, right? No, I never saw a thing, never heard anything, you know. Mm -hmm. But there's a couple of curious, other curious things that happen. Um, Shortly after the monkey men started uh, appearing into my room, uh, appearing in my room at night, um, because sometimes I would scream bloody murder, uh, and, you know, my, my dad would typically come and, and take me and, you know, I'd sleep with my parents. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know why sometimes I was so frightened and other times I, I wasn't, but that's that's the way it was. But I had we had a dog. We had a family dog named King, a German Shepherd. And King used to love to hang out in my room. And, you know, I would, you know, sneak pizza crust up to my room and, and feed him and mm-hmm. just, you know, just a great family pet. Mm-hmm. King wouldn't come in my room, wouldn't yeah. set foot in my room. I could pick him up and carry him into the room and set him down, and he would be out of there like a shot. If I picked him up, carried him in the room, and shut the door, he would flip out. Mm-hmm. He would he would claw at that door, and um, I couldn't get him to come into the room even with a piece of pizza. He would not, not do it. Yeah, he knew. He sensed something. He sensed something. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I used to have um, an encounter uh, of where I used to live and my my stepmother's dogs used to sleep. I used to wake up and they used to be on the at the foot of the bed. And now looking back, I realized they were protecting me, I think, you know, because these yeah. they, they wouldn't normally do that. But this this part of the house was pretty haunted. So um, that's interesting. He's he sensed it then he knew he didn't want to be anywhere near there. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so. After, so let's, any, anything after that particular monkey man experience after nine and then 11, you have this, you know, uh, cool, kind of cool UFO encounter. There's absolutely nothing after that until you said 22, was it 22? Yeah, until I'm age 22 in 1977 in the Air Force camping at Devil's Den State Park. And, uh. You know, you had mentioned, we had mentioned David Polites, and I told the story about Catherine Van Alst. Mm-hmm. In the beginning of the book, Incident at Devil's Den, I told the story of uh, Rodney Letterman, and I promised the readers That's that right. I'd give them an update. Yeah, when I was researching Devil's Den in 2017, uh, in August of 2017, I got caught a news story that was in the Arkansas Gazette, uh, the Winslow, the Russellville paper, it was everywhere. Uh, a 32-year-old young man from Bartlesville, Oklahoma, came down to Devil's Den with a friend uh, with the idea of taking the what's called the Butterfield Trail that cuts across the park. And that Butterfield Trail gets its name from the Butterfield Stagecoach Line, which was the first intercontinental stagecoach line. Uh, it was in uh, up and running through 1959, pardon me, 1859. Mm-hmm. Uh, it ceased operations in 1860 when the war between the states the Civil War, whatever your yeah. preference, you know, ramped up mm-hmm. and uh, it became unsafe. And uh, so they were there to walk the Butterfield Trail, which is paved, which is a nice paved, easy walk mm-hmm. now. And um, they were about a mile and a half into their, their hike. And uh, like I say, it's an easy walk. And it was a, there were a bunch of people on the trail. They weren't there by themselves. Middle of the afternoon, and Rodney says, I got to sit down for a minute. I think I'm having an asthma attack. I, I 
screwed up. I left my my inhaler in the car. Would you mind running back and getting it for me? And a friend, of course, says, sure, no worries. So a friend goes back to the truck at a run, picks up his uh, Rodney's inhaler and runs back. He gets back and there's no Rodney Letterman. All there is is a cell phone lying on the ground. I don't know about you, but my cell phone's either in front of me in my pocket, uh, mm-hmm. but I would not lay it on the ground. Yeah. And I talked to an officer, a deputy sheriff from Russellville, uh, who supplied the dogs. Uh, because a friend gets back, finds his phone, knows the terrain outside the path is too rough for Rodney to, to walk anywhere. It wouldn't make sense in his... And if you're having an asthma attack, you're not going to keep going. Yeah, you're not going to keep going. And he knew that he didn't pass him coming back from the truck. They would have run into each other had he walked back toward the truck. So he was worried immediately and called the ranger station. And um, two rangers came right away on a, on a four-wheeler kind of thing. And uh, they took it very seriously. And they organized the search immediately. And his friend kept saying, he can't have gone far. He couldn't have gone far. And um, they couldn't find him. And they had 2,500 people involved in the search. They had uh, the Arkansas Air National Guard had helicopters with FLIR, or forward-looking infrared radar, to look for a heat signature. Um, and they searched 2,500 acres and never found hide nor hair of him. And I published the book in March of 2018. And I promised that if anything ever changed, I'd let you know. So I'm here to let you know there's a development. Mm -hmm. Uh, In March of 2019, um, there was a a news story. uh, And you can find it on the internet. And it's told a couple different ways. Uh, The version of the story I got, I have came to my mind, you know, my ears from the mouth of a deputy sheriff uh, from Russellville Police Department, whose anonymity I respect. Mm -hmm. Um, and he said that uh, they got the dogs there and the dogs could pick up on Rodney's scent from the truck all the way to the phone but at the phone they just sat down and I said well what does that mean and he said that that means that the trail ended there Mm -hmm. and I said where where did Rodney go he said there were only two two possibilities he went down or he went up. Mm-hmm. My money's on up. Up, uh, yeah. So they never found him until March of 2019 when there's this young couple walking down the Butterfield Trail. And the young lady says to her friend, is that an albino turtle? And her friend's like, what? What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And there's this log about eight foot long that lines the, the trail. Mm-hmm. And right in the middle of the log is this football shaped white object. And her friend walked, they walked over together and he picks it up and looks at it and he realizes it's bone. And it is the skull cap. Of, it's a very top of Rodney's skull and it's a the jagged edges, uh, but it's, it's a football shaped piece of the top of his skull. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it was verified by the Bartlesville, Oklahoma Medical Examiner by DNA test as belonging to Rodney Letterman. But it's kind of curious. Uh, and this thing was dyed white from the sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and Ranger swore that wasn't there yesterday kind of thing. Mm-hmm. 300 people would have walked past it 
That's that what I'm, I was thinking. I was gonna, just going to mention that. Like, how, how, why, why did this couple just all of a sudden find it? Yeah. I, or maybe, maybe an animal brought it. I mean, maybe, I don't know. I mean, that, that could have been it. But um, this, this is such a, it's an interesting case, really. I mean. Yeah, I think back to my prosecutor days. And, and I, I, to me, it just feels like and sounds like a staged crime scene. Mm-hmm. You know, and they handled it forensically for that reason, because it's just curious that it was placed right dead square in the middle uh, on this log that was plainly seen, plainly visible from everybody coming and going. And uh, yeah, it was like, hey, you can close that case now. Here's that guy's skull. Yeah. Yeah. What happened to his shoes? Yeah. Or the rest of his yeah. body. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of this reminds me of um, I'm sure you, you, you know about Alan Godfrey's story. And Zygmunt, I think his name is Zygmunt Adams- Damsky. He was oh, put yeah. on top of that that po- that uh, that pile of coal in the UK. Yes. Yeah, I know yeah. that story. That's it's very interesting because he, they they did an examination of that body, and that body was um, that food in the stomach. Still, it was like in suspended animation. They said, "How in the heck he was gone for so many days? How in the heck is he is he still in this position?" And then his clothes were all over this array. Yeah, he'd been um, redressed. He, he'd been redressed. He, yeah. Right. And then he'd been found on top of a pile of coal. Who climbs up to a top of a pile of coal? I mean, so it, it, it sounds so familiar to me. Uh, some of these cases when they do, unfortunately, you know, heartbreakingly find the bodies, how they're just in such a state. Yeah. And, you know, another two things interesting about that particular case was that there was a gate. There was a locked gate. There was no way for him to get in there. So the body wasn't found until the following day. And the coal dust was only on the back of his suit coat and pants. So it's not like if he had, he walked up it. It should have been on. Yeah, it should have been all over. Coal dust at least up to his knees. And there wasn't. So it's just, uh, oh, and there were wounds. He had Mm -hmm. something like burn wounds and it had been treated with some kind of green Green ointment of some kind. Yeah. yeah. And and they've done studies on that, just like they did studies on the the the, the stuff on uh uh Betty Hill's uh dress. And they they don't they don't understand what this stuff is. Yeah. There's it's beyond on, our level of comprehension. Yeah, there's nothing on planet Earth that's like this. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting well, how these bodies are just literally, I mean, it seems like these bodies are just kind of laid there, you know. Yeah. Or, or when, like, you know, as as the little girl, you know, she just wakes up. Oh, I don't know. I just woke up here, you know. Yeah. Waiting so for you to come get me. No yeah. memory whatsoever. God, I wish I'd been able to find her. Wouldn't that have been? Wouldn't that have been great if I'd been able to find her and talk to her? Yeah, I, I, I or her family or or someone. I mean, I'm glad um, that Betty and Barney Hill have um, their their niece. I forgot her name. Kathleen Martin. Kathleen Martin. I knew it was something like that. And it was Catherine or Kathleen, but she she's continuing their legacy. And I I, I wish uh, the family of these folks would uh, kind of join in and kind of say, yeah, you know, this this isn't normal, you know, and, and it, w- it would have been really interesting if you could maybe find family. I don't I mean, I mean, who knows this family? I mean, after this little girl was found, found maybe they just said, OK, let's not even talk about this. You know, you know, that's a, that's a common theme. I I. Like I said, I've got all these people that sent me their stories that wanted to share their stories with me and uh, very honored to, that they shared them with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, a few of them I've, I've talked to, I've got their permission. What I did was I kind of 
tried to distill it down to the to the best of the best. Not that I judge the veracity of anybody's story, but mm-hmm. some are just more um, more interesting, more believable, more or something, you know, yeah. more interesting and uh, kind of being a data kind of guy. I laid these all out on a spreadsheet and I looked for commonalities and I was surprised at the the demographics and that the people that, um, that came forward with, with uh, vivid stories about abduction or at least interaction with ETs, mm-hmm. 50 was the median age. Interesting. Yeah, I thought so too. And there's there another commonality that um, kind of I think no one else has ever picked up on before. And I have a you know a relatively small sample. I mean, I'm talking about 400 people out of 1,700, but 400 is a significant number. It is, yeah. I had 400 people tell me that you know just almost in conversation tone you know when I was but when I was between the ages of two and seven or you know or four and six or when I was five somewhere when they're in that that age uh range they tell me that yeah I had this weird dream uh when I was a kid I had this weird I mean technicolor dream that was just uh strange and um it's funny but you know 40 years have passed 50 years 60 years have passed whatever and that dream is as fresh in my mind today as it was the morning that I woke up. Hmm. And every time I got this story from people, and I started to see it more and more, and I would I would always write to them and ask them the same three questions. Please tell me what you got for Christmas that year. Please tell me who came to your birthday party. And please tell me where you went for vacation with your family. Nobody. No, I mean, well, maybe, maybe a couple. Said, yeah. yeah, I remember I got a BB gun or I remember I got a Barbie or something, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. some, some small facet of it. But right. nobody could nail all three of them. Right. Uh, and most people said that's just lost to time. It's just a blur. So, yeah. But they can remember that stupid dream. Those are the people that were more likely to have had experiences that had yeah. that dream sequence. It's buried, you know. Yeah. That, 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 that dream. Cause that's what my mom, my mom always, um, when she had her encounter back in, this was before Star Trek, even, um, yeah. this was around 66, 67, 68, somewhere around there. And she had her encounter and she swore up and down. She goes, I, I, I thought it was a dream, but she woke up sitting up in her bed, <laughs> you know? And then interestingly, um, this was before great. This was before Close Encounters. This was before Whitley Strieber's Communion. It's before yes. anyone knew what Grays were. This was before Star Trek. So, you know, nobody knew anything about, you know, at this point, um, you know, uh, spacemen were either the the big giant ants, and I think it was called They Live, or it was the big metal robots, you know, coming out of, you know, clumsily kind of clunking out of the the, the spaceship with a hatch down. You know what I mean? It was that image. And yes. um, Or so my I'm favorite like, Martian. My favorite Martian was on television. Exactly, and, with the little antenna coming out. Yeah. And so, you know, my my mom always, you know, she, she was, a, you know, uh, she was autistic and she was uh, severely dyslexic. She didn't finish school and she was very sheltered. And she, you know, a lot of times they didn't have a TV and so this was, you know, here she was with two small kids. She had just gotten married again to my dad. And um, 
she after she woke up sitting up in her bed she woke up and then she went oh no and she there was a, a window above the bed and she jumped up and parted the curtains because she thought for sure she would see a craft how would she know that yeah you know yeah she, and there's she, a strange, strange similarity there. If uh, and I, I, I say it plainly, an incident at Devil's Den, that I woke up when I was 11 years old. I woke up sitting bolt upright in my bed when I saw those lights coming through the through the curtain. There you go. That's there. I mean, you know, such similarities that you just can't ignore them. And, um, you know, my mom, again, she said that when she was walking through this ship and she was getting she was getting some sort of tour of the ship from this gray, uh, which I will talk about later. I don't want to take up Terry's time, but um, but she was getting this uh, tour of the ship. And again, everything they walked in and, and it was strangely they were in this lift or elevator and uh, the doors opened just like Star Trek. Went, you know, they, uh, they opened, they walked into this room, her in this gray and the. Um, the the room was all brushed metal. She said there was nothing protruding. There was no knobs, no levers, no buttons, no switches, no nothing. Everything was real um, brushed metal, very smooth. And she said this gray with its long skinny fingers, just like in Close Encounters. And she hadn't seen it at this point because it hadn't been made. But she said it, it went like this with its hand across this control panel and powered its own ship. The ship to life. You would not believe how many emails I have telling that same story or a slightly modified version. Really? Oh, say, we have to talk again. I, I got to look at my at my Excel spreadsheet, but there's at least two dozen. You had just read me your um, your poem, and I wanted to go from 18 years on. And I, I thought you said that uh, from like 19, 20, 21, you didn't have really any encounters until about 22. You said you had another monkey man encounter. Is that true? Is yeah. That, yeah. Right? Okay. Here, here's, here's, here's the chronology. Um, I was born in 1955. Uh, in about 1959, when I was about age four is when uh, I started having these monkey man nightmares. And, uh, you know, that I have some recollection of being taken. Uh, and that lasted, and that really was, uh, you know, an episodic type of thing. You know, they might come four times in one week and I not see them for two months. And then they might come once a week, every week for four weeks and then be gone. So it was, uh, it was tough on the family because if I, if I got scared, I would scream mm -hmm. and wake up the whole household. So, but did they? My, uh, did they ever at one time get you? Did they, they take you to the doctor? Did they take you to a psychiatrist? Did they think that there was something wrong with you, or did they were just like, oh, this kid and his nightmares? They did. They did take me to a doctor, and uh, the event that triggered that really was I think I just turned nine. I had just turned nine. And uh, I had my last uh, abduction by the monkey men. And uh, this coincided, it was shortly after sighting the um, UFO in the backyard, um, and, which was in 1963 when I was eight. And they took me to the doctor. Doctor, uh, oh, 
this doctor, family doctor, right? I'd known him since I was could remember. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, uh, my dad's that my dad brings him in and says he's having nightmares. He's you know, and uh, the doctor says, "Well, uh, Dad, why don't you excuse us? I want to talk to this young man." And uh, my dad shuts the door on the way out, and he says, "Listen." You can trust me. I'm your doctor. I want you to be well. Can you tell me what's going on? And I'm thinking, do I trust this guy or not? You know, because mm-hmm. I know the reception I get if I tell the truth. So I thought, you know what? I'm I'm going to trust him. Right? He, he's a doctor. And uh, I said, well, I'll be honest with you. I got these little monkeys that step out of the shadows sometimes at night, and they take me and they take me to a big white room where there are other kids. And, uh, you know, I, last year I saw a flying saucer in the backyard, not along for a long time, just for a few minutes. And he's nodding his head and he says, okay, I see. And he says, well, and he brings dad back in. Right. So he and dad are talking and they're like, like, I'm not even there. And the doctor's like, what kind of, what kind of television is he watching? Mm-hmm. And my dad says, well, I don't know. what are you watching on TV? You know, mm-hmm. And I said, well, I watch uh, Space Ghost. And that was the first thing out of my mouth. And the doctor says, there you go. There you go. He says, what we have here is a combination of Space Ghost cartoons and overactive imagination. He says, uh, ditch the Space Space Ghost cartoons and Mm -hmm. uh, these nightmares and stuff will go away. (laughs) So I got home and I was allowed to watch The Three Stooges. So... I did, and about the fourth week, everybody in the household was sick to death of Molary and Curly. I got to tell you, <laughs> I mean, so my sister comes over and turns on Perry Mason. And I'm like, what is this? This doesn't look like any fun. Mm-hmm. So I started watching Perry Mason, and I kind of got into it. <laughs> and I kind of credit that with my, with my career choice. Seriously. Really? Yeah. That's neat. So, 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 I mean, that's, that's such a typical response, especially from an adult at that time, you know, in this whole, you know, world, uh, I, I can't tell you how many times, uh, my own personal story, other people's story, oh, over, uh, overactive imagination. And you're just like, really, you know, I'm not imagining this when something jumps on my bed, shakes the bed or rips the covers off. The, you know what I mean? I'm not imagining this stuff. But you get to the point where you can't um, talk about it anymore because you know you're not going to be believed. And that's kind of how I got. I got to the point where I had to suffer in silence. And it sounds like you pretty much did too you know after that the monkey men kept coming space ghosts or not you know they kept coming and you you just had to deal with it yeah you well know. luckily i had i you know I, I was nine when i had my very last uh monkey men uh experience and then uh i had peace until uh january uh when i was 11 in 1966 I was age 11. I had 11 years of peace. I never had another paranormal, supernatural, any kind of a strange event whatsoever. Like you said, nothing for years. You were fine. You were actually in the Air Force at this point, and you were a medic, and here you are working with Toby, and, and you're, you're guys really, you guys never talked about anything paranormal. Everything was okay with you guys. You just, it was just normal, 
army, you know, Air Force military dude stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, like everybody is like pretty much like working a job. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, we go in, do our job on days off. We, you know, play volleyball, have a barbecue or something. And Mm -hmm. it it really wasn't, uh, you know, we lived on base in base housing. We were both newly married. We had our wives with us. And, uh, you know, it was very much like having a job. I mean, I, I didn't live in a barracks anymore or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're starting to settle yeah. into some normalcy at this point, you know, as much as you can in the Air Force and the military. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there, so there was nothing suspicious going on. There was no weird dreams, no encounters with anything. And then all of a sudden, one day, Toby's like, hey, let's go camping. And you're like, what the heck are you talking about? And I remember you were like, I don't. <laughs> I've heard the story so many times. You were just like, what are you talking about camping? You, you've never been camping. I've never been camping. Why are we going camping? And then um, I'll, I'll let you take over from here because this is like the main story. So I'll let you explain it. Yeah, you know, there's, there's, there's some weirdness about this whole camping trip. And uh, when we prepared for it, you know, we were, I don't think nerds was really in our, in the vocabulary <laughs> back in 1977. You were not, you were not the outdoorsy type. You were the indoorsy yeah, type. <laughs> yeah, we, were, we, we were known as the uh, nerds of the squadron or bookish or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we, so we, um, you know, and, and how do, how do two guys like us go about doing anything that you haven't done before? Mm-hmm. We do research, right? So we, uh, we thought we'd learn how to go camping from a book. And uh, <laughs> we went to the base library and we found this 1958 Boy Scout manual. And Toby's all excited. He's like, oh, man, this is going to this, this nail it. This will tell us everything we need to know, you know. And uh, we went to his, we went to his uh, house and uh, he's taking notes and I'm reading, you know. And it's like, how to tie nautical knots? Nah, not, not necessary. <laughs> you know, how to do taxidermy? How to, how to, you know, how, how to uh, trap a squirrel. Um, I mean, it was absolutely useless. Yeah. You don't and, need uh, mountain man stuff. You just need like, okay, how do you pitch a tent? Uh, you know what I mean? That kind of stuff. You needed basic stuff. Yeah. We found that out. That's exactly what we did. We went to one of the outdoorsy types and said, hey, look, man, we've never done this before. We just need some guidance. We want to go camping. And he's like, go to Kmart, buy a $10 tent. <laughs> Two inflatable air mattresses, take some uh, uh, blankets from the hospital, bring them back, you know, take mm-hmm. some uh, DEET and some, uh, you know. A lantern. Military strength. Uh, yeah, a lantern, a camp axe, uh, both of which I left at home. Uh, that was another thing. that we, we, had, we had this exhaustive list and, you know, we were used to restocking an ambulance every night when we got off duty. So this, there were a lot of parallels between the two, right? You mm-hmm. make a list of what you need. You make sure you get everything off the list. Um, we were just really inept at this, and we shouldn't have been. I don't know where the wheels fell apart, but, uh, man, I left my camera bag, which was the whole purpose of the exercise. I mean, I'd gone out, I bought new filters, special, special uh, film, all kinds of stuff, and packed it in my camera bag and left it on my kitchen counter. I, my neighbor lent me a nice camp lantern with a gallon of, of fuel and a nice axe left in the garage. And, you know, we just weren't that inept. We really weren't. We mm-hmm. were both discussing that on the way down. How could we be so out Like, of what's wrong with us? Why are we doing? Yeah. And you, you told me you, you felt like you were keeping an appointment. 
like like it like you were almost being kind of guided and led and it's just you know i i guess whatever was guiding you was like yeah don't worry about the camera don't worry about the lantern you won't need it <laughs> you're not going to be there long <laughs> on some level i think you're right you know i mean i, I don't think we consciously had that thought obviously but i yeah. think maybe on some on some subconscious level probably and toby i think um you know, I say often enough, it speaks to the level of influence that these things have over us. And I think Toby was, was influenced. And, you know, he, he was a great navigator. Whenever we drove the ambulance, I always drove, he navigated. Because mm -hmm. he's one of these guys, you could blindfold him, spin him around in an office chair, and he could point to North, I swear. Mm -hmm. Oh, he was ama amazing. And uh, so he had this unerring sense of direction, but we were going to a place he'd never been. And, and yet he knew almost yeah. exactly where to go yeah yeah like like a dozen turns to get in there he knew well or, or or just was really lucky i mean that's you know to pick 12 out of 12 i mean mm -hmm. that's that's beyond the pale of coincidence i mean yeah and i saw know. the the pictures you sent me of the actual plateau the the area of the meadow where you where you guys stayed and for all the world, the, the, the thumbnails look like a, a helicopter landing pad. I mean, it looked like it was for all the world, like, like it was just, uh, I'm calling it the alien landing pad at this point, but it looked like a landing pad. And when I saw that, I was like, wow. So the government spends a lot of money to get to keep this thing mowed. You know, it just, if it just, for all the world, it kind of looks like they know something. I and think they do. Yeah. And then here you guys go uh, in an area where they're there. They know something's up and then they find all your stuff there. But I'm going to let you tell it from the beginning. So you guys are trying to you, you guys are like the three stooges of camping at this point, right? <laughs> we, we are. We are. I, I admit it. I admit it. We are. So, you know, we uh, yeah, when we when we got there, we had to, we took the paved road till it was a gravel road till it was a dirt road. And I think I mentioned last time that we. Toby saw that the chain had just been looped into a noose with a lock on it and draped across the road because we were blocked. There was a sternly worded keep out, do not enter sign. And we thought, you know, it was a nature preserve or something, but we weren't going to leave a mess. We weren't going to burn down the forest. We thought, what the heck? I mean, we knew we were trespassing, but we didn't think, you know, that's not the crime of the century. Right. Who so, would know? That's what well, you would probably like. Who would know? You guys were even up there. Yeah, you know, well, our mistake was we didn't put the chain back up. I, maybe that was our mistake. <laughs> so, I mean, just going back, you guys knew exactly where to go. You guys set up your tent. Yes. And, we, we, you know, yeah, we set up our tent. And, and um, even though it felt like we were keeping an appointment, and even though we had left some essentials at home, we had enough to get by. And uh, we went up. We found this, uh, we really, I, we were, were kind of euphoric. Uh, I mean, we felt like Lewis and Clark, you know? I mean, we, mm -hmm. we drove right up to this place. You guys were and, on a high uh, or something. Yeah, it felt like that. And there's just a dirt road. And to this day, there's still just a dirt road that goes up to that plateau. Hmm. And I made it up there in my old 66 Chevy, which was a miracle. I mean, that's more suited for a Land Rover. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, going home, we had gravity assist, so it was easy. And uh, mm -hmm. luckily, we got out of there without breaking an axle. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I didn't tell was uh, Toby wanted to set up the camp right away. And I said, no, 
no, no, no. I want to stretch my legs. I want to get out and walk and adventure and look around a little bit. Um, cause we were both in good shape and, and, uh, you know, just been sitting for six hours and, uh, in the car and I didn't feel like doing work. I wanted to get out and walk around and see the place. Mm -hmm. So I convinced him, let's do that. And we did, we walked around the, the top of the plateau and I recalled it being kind of horseshoe shaped. When you look at it from a satellite perspective, it's, it's more triangular, really. Mm-hmm. So uh, at the at the end, there were some locks, there still are, and we went down and then found a little creek and went across this creek and then ran into some, um, I don't know how far we hiked. It could have been five miles. Um, we uh, we had a gallon of water with us, and we, were, we found this really nice spot that was a cool limestone outcropping with a canopy of leaves over it, the tree over it. And we went and rested there and drank some water. And it was just, it was just pleasant. Mm -hmm. And we kicked back and went to sleep. You know, we, we laid back on this thing and we're resting. And I had no idea to fall asleep. You know, I mean, at 22, I didn't take naps. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it just wasn't, it just didn't happen. And, uh, you know, it was the time of day that normally we both were asleep because we worked a night shift. Mm -hmm. But no, I don't think we should. Have, I don't think we should have taken that nap up there. And what happened was we we probably got there. And I don't know. I, I wasn't keeping. I wasn't looking at my watch. I wasn't timing anything. Um, but mid afternoon, and we laid down on this on this nice cool piece of uh, limestone in the shade and I fell sound asleep. I had no dreams. Uh, I just, and it seemed like I just closed my eyes and opened them. Uh, and Toby's kicking me <laughs> saying, get up, get the hell up. And uh, he's in a panic because mm -hmm. it's getting close to dusk. And, you know, so it's, you know, seven thirty in the evening, and we got a long walk. Mm, okay. So, and um, he kind of panicked, and uh, I said, "You know, just calm down. You know, you're the guy with the sense of direction. Get just, just get us back home." Mm -hmm. And and you know that that kind of worked. He calmed down, and we, you know, we didn't run, but we walked as fast as we could, and we got back right before sunset. So we had time to set up a camp, you know, mm -hmm. takes what, half an hour to put up a tent or less. And uh, we did that under my uh, head, bright headlights on my car. Toby set up the tent and I, my job was to go gather firewood, right? But I don't have an ax. In the trunk of my car, I found a uh, rusty steak knife. <laughs> I tried to make do with that. And what I ended up with was this huge pile of brush with a few pieces of bark and wood mixed into it. So uh, I lit it and it went poof, and we had this, you know, 15 minute bonfire. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, but in those 15 minutes, we managed to, you know, burn a couple hot dogs and, uh, you know, had some dinner. And uh, we actually kind of enjoyed the day. 
Mm -hmm. and, and thought, you know, this is the fun stuff. This is, this is the fun stuff about camping. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember telling him that as, as the evening wore on. And then, um, and I don't want to repeat myself. Um, I thought I got to the point last time where I spoke about how the forest went so quiet. Uh, no, you, we were actually talking about when you were eight and how it was, uh, and we did hit upon uh, this encounter just a little bit. And I, of course, told you about my encounter, about how um, there's right. a, always an auditory thing where it's, it's all of a sudden Absolutely. it's like someone mutes the planet and it's like, what the heck's going on? So you guys were sitting there, you just eaten, you got back from your hike and you eaten with your you know bonfire. And then yeah. all of a sudden you, you noticed the auditory change. I did. And, you know, we weren't sleepy. We shouldn't have been. We just had a five hour nap or something, however mm -hmm. long it was. And uh, I mean, this was morning for us mm -hmm. because we normally work 11 p.m. to, to 8 a.m. So this is around nine o'clock. And I don't recall either one of us being the least bit tired. And uh, we had been chatting across the uh, campfire and that's when I noticed that the crickets, the tree frogs, all the stuff in the forest that makes noise, all fell silent. And uh, it was an abrupt silence. And that really unnerved me. You know, my friend's mm -hmm. like, oh, I don't worry about it. You know, we've been we've been loud and laughing and joking around and we've quieted them and, and they'll come back. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about the bugs. Mm -hmm. And uh, I still felt uneasy about it. Mm -hmm. And. We go back to our conversation, and um, he has his head turned to the left, which was toward the west, and he's looking at something. And I'm just about to ask him, hey, what are you looking at? And he asked me, hey, Terry, were those lights there before? And I think we may have touched on this, but this is, this is kind of important stuff. Mm -hmm. And that is that we saw a tight little triangle of three bright stars sitting right just above the horizon. I mean, too far above the horizon to have been lights from a train or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, we didn't know what they were. We couldn't, couldn't figure it out. You know, it just, they, they looked like they didn't belong there. Now, Toby was an amateur astronomer. You know, he could point out constellations and name them and time when a satellite would come over. Mm -hmm. And he lived to watch the night sky. And, so he uh, would know, and when when he notices something strange, then it hit you. Yeah, yeah. His words, his words were, "Those are artificial. Mm. They don't belong there." And they, but the stars were twinkling. So I asked him. I said, "Are these things in our atmosphere, or are they outside of our our atmosphere? You know, are we looking at something at thirty thousand feet or, or thirty light years?" And he says. I don't know. They're, they they twinkle like stars, but he said, I don't know. I don't know what we're looking at. So while we're debating this, these things rotated. And that was the first movement they made. They rotated like they were on an axis, and they turned to the right about 120 degrees, and the little tight pyramid aligned itself with the base of the triangle parallel with the horizon. And then as soon as it did that, that's when I felt this first wave of sedation wash over me. And it was, um, oh, it was very noticeable. Mm -hmm. 
And I felt, uh, you know, because I had felt so unnerved about the sounds going mm -hmm. quiet, this was an abrupt change because now I didn't care. You know, I, uh, I wouldn't say I was apathetic, but I was a bit almost disinterested. I mean, I felt like I was, I was there as an observer, not as a participant. Mm -hmm. It's a weird, weird place wherever I was, but I was definitely sedated. It felt very much like what they gave to me prior to anesthesia when I was in a hospital for an operation years back. Yeah, I remember when we discussed the, because uh, my mother had this sort of dreamy like when she had her experience. It's that weird twilight anesthesia that they give you right when you have like a colonoscopy. It's that, it's that, it's called twilight. You're awake, but you're dreamy. Yeah, and we you're... spoke about that. It's called mm -hmm. Versed. Mm -hmm. You're yeah, like oblivious. Really, you're yeah. just kind of like, oh, whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? I recall thinking that it was pleasant, you know, well, just because it was good not to be afraid, mm -hmm. but it was also a relax, a pleasant, relaxing sensation. And, um, you know, there's only one place that that could have come from that came from the, from that thing, you know, mm -hmm. on the horizon. I have no doubt. That's, that's my opinion. I have no way to prove it, of course, but. Um, my friend is in exactly the same kind of situation. So there's hardly a word spoken between us. You're just and watching at this point. We're just watching. And uh, after, the, after it had completed this clockwise move and stopped, it only stopped for a second or two, and then it started to ascend. It went up into the air with the point of the triangle up. And which I guess we would have been seeing the top or the underside of the craft because it was triangular shaped and thick. This thing climbed up into the sky. And my first thought is, are these three objects moving in unison or is this one solid object? Mm -hmm. And there were so many stars out that night that uh, it would, as it would move, the sky itself was dark blue. The area inside the triangle was black. And as it got bigger, when it came to getting closer, you know, the three lights of point, points of light on the triangle expanded and always remained equidistant to one another. So, I mean, we knew we were looking at one solid object. I mean, it passed over a field of stars and they would black out uh, as it went by and then blink back on as soon as it was passed. Mm -hmm. And it, it got to a ceiling, I'm guessing 10 or 12,000 feet. I got nothing but my gut to base that on. It had this vertical posture and was parallel with the ground. And it changed orientation. And then it started like a glide plane in our direction. And it was definitely coming in our direction. There was yeah, no well, I was going to say, it's that. coming for you guys. Yeah, it's coming for us. And, you know, this is the point where, you know, we should have been freaked out. You know, I should have been loading the car. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and there was none of that. There was just peace and sedation and that dreamy, you know, like, wow, look at that. How neat. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. Mm -hmm. You know, it was. Well, I mean, it was you just, had to be sedated. I mean, if, if you guys were in your right mind and then you saw the same comment, you'd be running. So I think it had you in its sights. It, it did. And it was like, yeah. let's make these guys goofy headed, you know, so we can sneak up on them. <laughs> And you know what, in, in these, um, 
I think I told you last time about all the emails that I got from people mm-hmm. who've had similar experiences. This sedated feeling and this feeling of calm when you when you when you see one of these things mm-hmm. is not unusual. It's absolutely not unusual. I've had a lot of people report to me they had the same experience. That's interesting. My my mom was on a craft. I told you she called it a dream right. for years, but she had that same thing. And there was this really tall gray and a blue cloak and it was showing her around. And she said she was just in awe. She was just like, wow, look at that. She was just in this dreamy like state. And yeah. it wasn't until this this gray with this long skinny fingers went like this across a control panel and powered up the ship that she woke up out of that and she was like, Oh no. And she realized she wasn't going to get home and she panicked. Um, that was the, I was oh. when, how old was she? She was in her mid twenties. I would okay. say. Not yeah. Like she, us. Exactly. Yeah. She was, she was, um, I would say probably no older than maybe like 24 or so. She was, well, she's born in 43 and it was like 1967. So. Yeah. That's about, yeah. Yeah. And this was before Star Trek and everything. And it's really interesting how, you know, here we are talking about UFO encounters and how many UFO encounters uh, or, um, you know, um, experiencers can compare Star Trek technology to what they saw uh, on the ship and, and whatnot. You know what I mean? Like the beaming up like you saw the my mom noticed when she was in this elevator, this lift how the doors just went, how they opened up like in Star Trek, you know, Um, you know what I mean? It's just, it's so interesting how people kind of go back and go, oh my gosh, you know, that's exactly what I saw. But at this point, you guys are sitting here, you're in your little dreamy, like, you know, child, almost like, you know, innocent kind of like, well, look at that. And it's coming right at you. Do you remember anything after that? Yeah, I do. I do. As As it's on this glide plane down toward us, it did this tumbling thing and the point of the triangle dipped underneath and this thing did a complete somersault. Hmm. And I thought, cool. <laughs> and then a second or two later, it did it again. And I had, I had the thought, I don't know where this came from, but I had the thought they're doing that for us. Showing you know, off. This thing's, this thing's not out of control. It's mm-hmm. moving with purpose and intent. That's what I got out of that. Maybe that's what they wanted me to get out of that. Hmm, That's interesting. um, Yeah. I I actually saw um, three lights and they were going in such a formation and it was almost like they wanted me to see it. Um, I'll tell you about it later. But when they did that, it was like this formation that it was like it, it was like they were saying nothing you have does this. Only we can do this. I really had the feeling that they were they were um Sending us a message. I don't know if it's true or not. I have, it's an assumption on my part. Um, but we watched it glide in, and it hit the horizon at maybe 5,000 feet. Mm-hmm. And then it came across the top of the forest, because we were elevated. We were on a plateau that was equal with the treetops. Um, so we saw it about 5,000 feet, I'm guessing, over the tops of the trees. And then it glided in on a slow descent and eventually parked, for lack of a better word, right over this meadow where we were camping. And it filled the whole meadow. It was a city block long on each on each leg of the triangle. Um, 
And as soon as it, as it was doing its descent, it dimmed the white lights. Um, so they were dimmed somewhat. And it was um, not over our heads, thank God. That would have been really creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were, we were off to the side, and, which was kind of cool because we could see one side of this thing. And that's how I was able to draw the picture. Um, of the windows. You know, we go, yeah, right. I mean, we could see one side almost fully, and then the other side, you know, not so much, but get an idea, we had a pretty good idea of what we were looking at. Um, and it was intimidating. Um, well, we, we really couldn't see the sides of the thing until later, but really at this point, all we could see was the underneath of the thing, and it was just black black with lights on each point of the triangle. And as it parked, um, it kicked on a light from underneath the thing and dead center. It kicked on this light that had this white quality to it, like a searchlight cutting through fog. You know, you can see a white column of light. Mm -hmm. This had that same milky quality to it. But of course, there was no fog. It was just this beam of light. And it landed in our campfire, and it stayed there for maybe a minute. And then it just clicks off, and then immediately, and instead, there came this laser. And I'd never seen a laser in real life. I'd seen them on TV, but I'd never seen a laser in real life before. Mm-hmm. And it was about the diameter of a pencil. Mm-hmm. And it shot down from the same place underneath this triangle, and dead center, and this thing would land at one spot in the campsite for a millisecond and then appear in another spot for a millisecond and then be somewhere else in a millisecond. So like over the span of a second, it could be in five or 10 different places all around the campsite. So it's almost like a strobe in a way, the laser yeah, pointer, yeah. you know, like they just go. Pew, 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 pew. So it was just basically doing that. It was it, very much like a strobe, except wow. it struck um, it struck us. I mean, it wasn't striking dirt. Uh, or trees, it struck me several times in the chest. I never felt anything. It struck my friend. um, And we were both just extremely calm through this. Uh, It hit our tent. It hit hit Toby's cooler, his backpack. uh, I think it was analyzing what it was picking up. Yeah. It was scanning us. Absolutely. And I even had that thought back then that, you know, this thing's checking us out. Mm Mm-hmm. It is. It's checking us out. And uh, again, no fear. And then as that light kicked off, that sedated feeling that we'd had transitioned from mild sedation, slight disinterest into sleepy. I mean, super sleepy. I mean, I. if you've ever felt so tired that all you want to do is put your head down somewhere and sleep. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, Toby was ahead of me. He, he, well, he was a little closer to the tent. He threw his air mattress and fell on top of it. By the time I got there with mine, he was already snoring. And I threw my, I didn't bother to take my boots off, my shirt off, nothing. I just threw my air mattress in and fell on top of it. And I was, I was out. And I don't think I was asleep. I think I was unconscious. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but my boots were laced up. And I'll get into that in a minute. Um, and we were out, and that's when they took us. That's when they took us. Sometime during that night. I don't mm-hmm. know. 
I don't know when. I think I may have mentioned that our watches stopped mm -hmm. at 2.40 and 2.41. And I woke up uh, about an hour before daylight with these just incredibly bright lights flashing in through the canvas of the tent, mm -hmm. white and orange and yellow. And I thought they were the overhead, you know, flashers of a park ranger's truck there to kick us out is mm -hmm. what I thought. And I woke up and I sat up and I looked down at my boots and I think, I think we may have covered this, but I'll, I'll cover it again. No, go ahead. Uh, yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't unlace my boots. I went, I went to sleep with my boots on and laced. Um, I would have taken them off or I would have left them laced up, but I wouldn't have left them like that. Mm -hmm. So I took my boots off and my socks were on sideways. And I'm not really freaked out. I'm not scared. I'm just, I'm kind of confused. Mm -hmm. And I put them on properly and I laced my boots back up and I turned my attention to my friend and I asked him, I said, what's out there, Toby? Is it park rangers? Who's out there? And uh, he didn't, he didn't answer me. Because at this point, he's peering out of the tent, and you're trying to fix your shoes. Yeah, he's peering out of the tent. I get my shoes fixed. I'm still kind of out of it. I still don't have my wits about me. And um, in the flashes of light, I could see tracks of tears down the right side of his face. Because the saline in the tears, I guess, fluoresced in that bright light. And I could tell he'd been crying. And now that scared me. That was mm -hmm. the first real fear that I felt because I couldn't imagine what this what would make this man cry. Mm -hmm. You never seen him and like that. No, I always, you know, and we had been car wrecks, plane crashes, all kinds of things. I was known to be a very level-headed guy, mm -hmm. and uh, that scared me. So I got to my knees and I pulled back my flap of the tent. And this is when I saw that the, the thing that had been 3,000 feet over our heads when we went to bed mm -hmm. uh, had descended, and it was now just 30 feet over the floor of the meadow. So that's why these lights were so bright, because they were they were just... They're on top of you. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. They're on top of us. So, And then the second thing I noticed was what I thought to be a dozen kids, maybe, walking around the floor of the meadow, and they were all paired up into twos and threes, there might have been 15. I don't know. I didn't count them. But, mm -hmm. uh, I couldn't see them real well until these lights on the, on the points of the triangle, when they would flash, then I, then I could see them a little better, but still mostly in silhouette. But I, I, I thought they were kids. And I asked Toby, I said, Toby, man, what are these kids doing out here in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere? And that's when he told me, Look at them again, Terry. Those ain't no little kids. Don't you remember? They took us and they hurt us. And I swear, the second he said that, my fear level went from, you know, a two to a ten. And uh, I had flashes of memory from mm -hmm. being inside that thing. And I, I can tell you all those because mm -hmm. those became those images became the subject of my nightmares. And what I called in, I called them intrusive thoughts. You know, later in life, when I got diagnosed with uh, PTSD, I, I was told they were flashbacks. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, yeah. sometimes they would be triggered by something. Sometimes I would be doing something, you know, cutting grass or doing something totally in mm -hmm. my mind, not on anything at all. And I had this memory flash across my mind. Yeah, they're traumatic memories. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys saw these little 
beings walking around. What were they doing? Were they talking? Really? Do they, they don't talk, right? You, you never heard a sound from them. Never heard a sound from them. They were walking around. Honest to God, more like tourists. I mean, they were, they were, they were, they weren't like yeah. looking for something on the ground. You they know? were just kind of like, oh, well, look at this place. It's a nice planet. <laughs> yeah. That, I, I swear, it's silly, I know, but that's what they, that's what they gave me that impression. They were just casually strolling around this meadow. And they were getting some sightseeing in after the abductions and <laughs> yeah, pretty yeah. much. And we're scared to death. We're afraid we're going to cough or sneeze and they're going to come over. We had no way of knowing they were long done with us, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So, so you guys were just watching them. We were just watching them. Uh, thankfully they were a fair distance away. Um, and while we were watching them, they, um, this light kicked on from underneath this thing. And again, it had that white quality of uh, searchlight through fog to, of course, there's no fog, just the white light. But this visible beam of white light came on and it was about 30 feet in diameter because I'm guessing that it's going to be very close because this thing is 30 feet off the ground and the beam is as wide as this thing is tall and it's a column of white light. And as soon as this clicked on, all of these little guys in the metal Turned their direction, turned their head in the direction of it, and they didn't run or, or hurry, but they just started to meander over toward it. And they would step into it. We watched the first two little guys step into it, and they pixelated out. They just pixelated out, and they were gone. They got beamed up, basically. More Star, Star Trek, up. yeah, more Star Trek yeah. technology. <laughs> more Star Trek technology, yeah. So these little guys were. You said they had a funny walk. There was something about they their did. legs. They did. With every step they took, it looked like their leg moved backward maybe an inch or two. Um, so that when they would bring their back foot forward to take a step, it was almost like they were dragging that foot halfway through the process of taking a step. I don't know how else to describe it. It's very unique. Um, I had someone else say that they saw the same thing, but uh, only one person but I, I, I don't know. These were, you know, I've got a theory about the grays and mm -hmm. uh, this is all assumption. Got nothing yeah. to base this on. And there are a lot of people out there that have seen grays. And because I have people tell me all the time, oh, well, that's not right. You didn't see real grays because they're this or they're that. Or, you know, I think there's probably a dozen or more versions of them. That's, I can only speak yeah. to what, what I saw. Mm -hmm. And the ones that I saw, I really... I don't think they're sentient beings like you and I are. I think they're like little robots. I think they're like artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, quantum computing, who knows, you know? Yeah. But I think they're manufactured beings. And That's, I think I called yeah. them in my book worker bees for that yeah. reason or drones. That's a that's so, a good term. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's and when we were um I said that I had memories of being on the ship. Uh, I don't know if we had time to get into those last time or not. No, we, we haven't really discussed the actual incident. We were talking more about the monkey men. And um, so that's why I'm trying to get into every little detail because I really want to get into your head about it. So at this point, you guys are watching the little guys just kind of meander about. Did you see their full form or was it too dark? Did you see the big head with the eyes? I mean, like the typical gray look. Right. They, they, they had that. Absolutely. I could see that. I could see that in the flashes of light. We both could. 
because Toby said, that's why Toby said, take a look at them, Terry. They're not human beings. And they had the large head, spindly torso, maybe longer extremities than they should have been. And they walk with this distinctive gait. Whatever they were, they, well, they were grays, obviously, because we've yeah. seen a flash they of light. They were kind of gray. gray. Yeah. So you, you saw meander around. They were just, how long were you guys watching them meander around? Maybe five minutes. Not long. You just fixated on this. That, that must have been a sight. I would have loved. I mean, I'm terrified, but I would have loved to have seen that. Because it was, yeah, was it, know, it was it like a close encounters kind of thing? Was it just like that? No, um, it wasn't. It was more frightening than that. Because I could remember I had now I've never had a clear linear memory of what happened mm -hmm. to me in that ship. But yeah. I've got some bits and pieces that I'll tell you about that, you know, have haunted my haunted my nightmares. I yeah. mean, they've been the subject of my nightmares for years. Um, I opened my eyes and I, I, you know, I was asleep in the tent. And the next thing I know, I open my eyes and I'm in a different place. And the place that I'm in is enormous. Now, this thing from the outside was as big as a medical building. When I opened my eyes, I don't know if they took us someplace else or if the inside of this thing operates under different physics than what we use. But the thing that I woke up in was as big as an NFL stadium. I know that sounds crazy, and there's no explanation for that. So big that I, I, the, the, the figures and the things at the far end were just minuscule. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I didn't have any sedated feeling anymore. I was absolutely terrified out of my wits. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I was frozen. I couldn't move. I could not move a muscle. The only thing that I could move is I could rotate my eyes. Uh, but I couldn't turn my head to look at anything. I couldn't look up. I couldn't look down. Uh, and they had already taken our clothing off. And I was holding my clothing and boots between my arms like this. And we saw a couple strange things. First of all, the inside of this thing, everything was gray or white, almost like porcelain or stainless steel. And like brushed aluminum. Yes, that's yeah. it. Like brushed aluminum. Absolutely. That's what my mom saw. And the little gray guys, we were in like this big atrium because you know, my limited field of view, I could I could see that there were these um, walkways that went around. Uh, but we were in a big open atrium. I would have loved to have been able to tilt my head back and see what was above us, but I didn't have that ability. And I had the, I knew that Toby was next to me. All right, I sensed that. Mm -hmm. I don't think I really saw him, but I just, I sensed that. And I heard a woman scream. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, somebody jumps up, you know, boo, and you go, ah, I mean, you know, that's a scream. Mm -hmm. This was a, this was a pain scream. This woman was hurting and that scared me. That scared me really bad. And then I, uh, I noticed to my right segregated from us was a mixed bag of men, women, and children. And they were in rows and columns. And because I couldn't turn my head, I could only see the first two rows, I could not see how far back the columns went. So I could have been looking at eight people or 80 or who knows. 
but it struck me that these were these were a mixed bag of men, women, and children. And I thought, why on earth would they take a child? You know? Mm-hmm. And I know that they kicked us out at the end of the night, but these souls went, you know, up with them. And I, uh, you know, I felt bad about that all these years, wondering what happened to those people. And I hope they made it home. Yeah, I mean, this again, we're going back to David Politis, um, you know, uh, area where where all these missing people who just sure disappear out of thin air. Where are they? You know, yeah. the people that are never and these, found. And these people had their hand, had their clothing in their hands. And I had no way of knowing how long they'd been standing there. They could have been standing there for days for all I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, suspended but, animation. Yeah, well, you know, they were looking around and uh, their their eyes were like like ours, just all over the place, uh, I think out of fear, and they were all crying. And I don't remember if we were crying or not, but I know they were. And I don't know what they were doing there. And then there were another, I saw another group of humans, uh, either six or seven, and these guys absolutely look like human beings. Uh, and they carried themselves like they were like they were crew members aboard this ship. And I, I took them to be crew members. And they wore tan-colored flight suits. They wore the same kind of combat boots that I wore. They were all like 19 to 22 years of age. They all had military-style haircuts, just like us. Um, and I don't, I don't know. There, there were no tan flight suits in the Air Force at this time. Uh, you know, some other... Nation may have used tan flight suits, but the United States did not. Mm-hmm. And they had an orange patch on their, sh- a round orange patch on their shoulder. I could see that much. And, but I couldn't see the writing on it, unfortunately. And one of these days I want to be regressed. And that's what I want to find out what was on that patch. Um, and then they were, I never heard them speak. Um, but they were, they were very casual, but they would not look at us. They wouldn't look at us and they didn't look at the other human beings either. And this guy went over to a panel that was parallel to me and I couldn't see what was on the panel. I'm assuming it was a panel. He went over to a wall and did something with his hands. And then everybody comes kind of like, Oh, you know, they just kind of meandered away. Hmm. So I don't know, you know, were these people in some, were these human beings in the secret space program or something? I don't know. I don't know what they were. Here are these humans who, you know, very well could be full human. I mean, if they're not hybrids or whatever they call them. I don't know. I'm not I'm not into the UFO lingo. I don't know much about it. But I I mean, if they're if they're full humans, then, you know, who knows that they the military didn't say, hey, you know what? Let's work together. Uh, or the UFO say, hey, let, military, let's work together. You know what I mean? Like the Dolce base. They, um, uh, from what I read, was it the Granada Treaty or was it the Granada? Is that what, it's, what it was called? But, um, you know, here here they were saying, hey, let's make a base. We'll abduct people and do experiments and you look the other way. Right. Just don't, right. you know. That, that, that was part of the agreement. That, 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 that was part of the treaty, the, you know, the, the contract that they hammered out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think there are three possibilities. 
And I can't think of a fourth, but I think there are three possibilities. Well, I guess the fourth is it's all fiction, but I don't believe that. Yeah. The first possibility is that we're working shoulder to shoulder with ET with some kind of an accord signed by us and maybe other nations. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that would be a good reason for them to keep the lid on things Mm -hmm. and not, and not come forward and say anything because we're in this treaty with them and they give us technology. What do we have that we can give them that's of any importance or any value to them? People, humans, people, people, human blood, human DNA, animals, animal blood, animal DNA. Mm -hmm. You know, there's been an uptick in cattle mutilations in Oregon again. Mm. Yeah. So I I think that, you know, maybe we're operating on some kind of agreement where they're allowed to take X number of people and, uh, you know, we get technology. Mm -hmm. That's, that's number one. Number two is we were in that agreement and they, um, they don't honor their terms. They don't honor the terms of the agreement. The agreement may have limitations. You know, you can take 500 people a year and they're taking 5,000 or something. You know, they're, yeah. they're exceeding the bounds of, uh, of, uh, of the contract and don't understand that they have a commitment to honor their word. So mm-hmm. that's two. And then the third possibility is that they're here. And they met with Eisenhower mm-hmm. or whoever. It mm-hmm. doesn't really make any difference. They met with someone in power and said, we're here. We're going to do this, 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 and you can't do a thing about it. Yep. And that's that's a likely possibility, too. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I kind of see that as... Um, as a reason for, for world governments to be so reticent to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I also, you know, uh, Stephen Hawking said that we had to go to Mars for survival of the planet. We had to go to Mars. And, you know, he was, we've been uh, through SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. We've been beaming high power messages out into the universe, looking for a, a response. Mm-hmm. And uh, Stephen Hawking said, that's dangerous. He said, we're just shouting into the darkness. He says, we have no idea what we're going to attract to us. You know, in the past couple of years, there's been this thing called uh, FRBs for fast radio bursts. Mm-hmm. And uh, that sure as heck sounds like, uh, you know, a wow moment to me. Mm-hmm. And these things have been repeating and uh, then they'll die down, then they'll start up again. And physicists have no idea what's causing them. I mean, they have assumptions they can make that it could be from, um, you know, a dying star or a pulsar yeah. or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's all conjecture. They don't know. Yeah, I find it. Um, I find it all very just strange how people can still because I, I mean, after I saw what I saw and my mother's encounter, I just was like, OK, there's some weird stuff out there, you know, and I kind of left it at that. And, you know, you got to you got to assume automatically that the government is hiding stuff because they're always hiding stuff. But um, and, you know, my I had a relative tell me who worked for the government and he told me the same thing. He said the American government is always up to no good. Don't trust it. (laughs) He said they're always hiding stuff. 
And um, and he worked for the government. He worked for the CIA. And he worked with the FBI. So he, he knew a few things. And uh, so he always told me, he said, the American government's always up to something. And uh, don't trust them. And uh, they're always hiding stuff. And um, so now with the Tic Tac out and all these other, you know, the the, the Triangle and Jeremy Corbell and all of the all the stuff that's out now, I still can't believe the people are, are just like, do you think there's life out there? Yeah, and it's been here this whole time. You know, you have to take all the stuff, all the encounters, all the, you know, since the 30s, 40s, even in the 1800s, there were, you know, encounters. People would see these uh, flying ships and they didn't know what the heck was going on. And they, they you know, they thought it was in a hot air balloon or something. And, you know, so you take all these encounters and just put them all together and say, we've been visited by something for a long, long time. And, you know, thankfully that it's just it's I mean, it's finally coming out. I, I see a lot of uh, folks being vindicated and feeling vindicated um, and and um, and a lot of shame kind of uh, melting off of people um, that have been, you know, told, oh, you just have a mental uh, health issue or, you know, you're crazy or you just imagine things, you know, all these times people have been told that they just imagine stuff and so now it's all coming to light and i'm just i'm so happy to see all this and and i'm so happy your story is getting out and uh you know so all of this is is just so important and i'm i'm just so glad to to have you on this show and i'm so glad to hear your story and and to get the the dialogue open uh when it comes to um any sort of paranormal encounter but ufo encounters especially because the government has known about this for ages and you know the military especially and so now it's it's finally coming out and i i really truly believe that there is some sort of deal because why are all these people going missing and i'm so glad david politis is here to you know highlight all of that and um so yeah so with 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 you and and toby you guys saw these little beings just being kind of lifted and beamed up so at this point when the last group left what did the ship do? When the last two, when the last two little guys disappeared, uh, we had been hearing this. Now, when we first saw this thing and it parked 3,000 feet over the meadow, we heard nothing, no noise whatsoever. When I woke up inside the tent with these flashing lights, uh, I thought it was a park ranger's truck and I heard this droning sound. Uh, I, call, I call it a droning sound. I don't know what else to call it. You know what it was like? It was like being next to a big piece of industrial machinery. Mm-hmm. Like a tractor. And Yeah. And, and it's, uh, or, or like a diesel locomotive uh, idling, bulldozer. Yes. Something, yeah. you know, there was noise, but it, it wasn't auditory. It didn't hurt my ears, but I could feel it in my chest. Mm-hmm. Like a generator maybe running. Yeah. As a matter of fact, that was that was kind of I'm looking for logic when I'm sitting up and I'm thinking there's a park ranger running a generator out of the back of the uh, back of his truck. Uh, That doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, when when this thing we watched this thing take off, when that light turned off, that droning noise stopped. And that had been going on, I guess, before we woke up. So it was kind of a baseline and we really didn't notice it all that much until it stopped. And then it was that that sound booth quiet again. Mm-hmm. Um, and while we're watching the lights on the points of the triangle switch to all white. And if you look at that drawing under terrylovelace.com of the thing, I saw, I, I label a thing, a light bar. Cause this thing was kind of was deep. Mm-hmm. 
And they had like a beam of light that would go up and travel up and down that light bar. And um, the lights inside the ship all dimmed and it took off and it didn't, I mean, it didn't take off like a rocket ship at all. It just lifted off like a hot air balloon and just went up. And we watched it till it was three points of light and then one point of light and then it was gone. And we were, we sat there in that tent with like two scared 10 year olds. And uh, I wanted to stay there till morning. I said, we're, let's wait for the sun to come up. And Toby's like, no, no, we got to get out of here. So we, uh, we debated it for about 30 minutes and I knew he was right. And we did the one, two, three go thing and darted to the car. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where I think I gained this phobia of being of open spaces. You know, I can't cut across an open field. I don't like being out in the open. I feel vulnerable. And I, I blame that for that, for that um, mm-hmm. s- symptom. But we got to the car and uh, I hopped in the car. Thankfully it started up right away and I hit the dome light and I said, Toby, are we good? And he knew what I meant. He's looking under the seats and in the back seat to make sure nothing else is in there with us. Mm-hmm. We got the doors locked, of course. And uh, we were both just acutely dehydrated. And I asked him, I said, man, if, can you find something to drink back there? Is there a can of Coke or something? I'll drink anything as long as it's not poison. And he's like, yeah, me too. Um, but there's nothing. And I'm like, well, we'll have to wait till we come across the first gas station we come across. And we didn't know what time it was. There was no clock in my 66 Impala and our watches had stopped. But it, it worked out that it was about an hour before daylight. So Toby navigated us out of there and I didn't break an axle, which was amazing. And we drove across that chain in the road because I had no idea where we were, where we were in, in the night, especially everything looked the same. I, mm-hmm. I don't know how he was able to do that. But like I said, he had an excellent sense of direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went across the road and we saw that chain that we had taken down was lying on the ground. And we just, we drove over it. And I was just glad to see it because that, that verified for me that we were on the right trail to get back to Blacktop. And we did, and we hit the road and uh, we headed north. And, uh, you know, a couple of things changed. And I may have touched on this later, but I, I really think it's important. And that was that we went down there like two teenagers and left like two adults. Um, I, it was a it was a life changing event mm-hmm. for both of us. And what's strange was, you know, here this guy Toby, his wife and my wife are friends. We're friends, and uh, you know we hang out, we work together, and suddenly I had the feeling like I didn't want anything to do with the guy. The Ray Fowler's book, The Allagash Four. Oh, yeah. Talks mm-hmm. about the two twins and two friends that went camping. Right, up in Maine. Up in Maine. Afterwards, yeah. the band breaks up. Everybody goes in a different direction. Mm-hmm. And I got letters from people. Um, I got letters from these five guys that uh, work in a firehouse in Texas, not far. They were all firefighters. And one year they decided they were going to go. They'd always fished every together every holiday that they got in the summer. Mm-hmm. And uh, this year they wanted to go uh, hunting wild hogs. Hmm. So they'd all been in the military. They went out and they bought AR-15s. And one of the guys had this 
like 60 acres of land down south in the middle of nowhere. And his family had an old, an old trailer there. And you could go down there, camp, and uh, it was like a deer hunting site. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I, don't, I don't hunt, so I don't know all the details. But, um, you know, they had get, the inside get, didn't have any electricity, but the inside gave them a place to crash. And, uh, you know, if they, if they shot a deer, they could, they could butcher it and package it there. And, uh, you know, they could have a campfire and, mm-hmm. you know, have a barbecue, whatever. Mm-hmm. And their first night there... Um, the guy that owned the place, and I can't think of the name, the guy that owns the place, I'll call him Jeff for lack of a better reason. Um, you know, Jeff is, uh, one, they're all sitting around. One of, the guy, one of the guys is an older guy, about 50. And uh, they're all sitting around a campfire and uh, talking about what they're going to do the next day. Mm-hmm. And uh, the guy that wrote to me said that, he could see in the distance there was a field that went like a hundred yards in front of him and then a real thick tree line. And he saw lights back there, like bright lights in these trees. And he points that out to Jeff, you know, the whose family owns the property. And Jeff flips out. And evidently his the trailer got broken into last year or something, he said, and they stole some stuff. And um, but he really really flipped out and he took a sidearm that he had like a 45 mm-hmm. held it up in the air and said i'll, I'll scare these people mm-hmm. off off <laughs> off my land and he fires seven rounds boom, boom boom you know into the air well scares the hell out of the poor guy with who's 50 years old with a heart condition and he's like i gotta go in a trailer and uh, i'm gonna take a nitro and i'm gonna lie down all right you know keep the gunfire down will you yeah. And he goes on the trailer and crashes on the couch. And um, But uh, the guy that owned the, owned the property, he was just outraged that these people would be here. And the, last, the guy that wrote me, the last thing he remembers was this, that uh, his friend, the property owner, uh, picked up his AR-15 and was walking toward the lights. Now, he was a quarter mile away, but he was walking maybe a little further, he's, but he's walking towards the lights. Got to check it out and see what it is, right? Mm-hmm. And about this time, um, this the, the youngest guy in the group, the guy who was, who was supposed to be the cook if, if they shot anything, guy who runs out of the trailer and said, Melvin's gone. I can't find him. And there was no back door to this trailer. Well, there was a back door, but there was all kinds of stuff piled in front of it, and it mm-hmm. wasn't usable. And uh, everybody's like, what do you mean? We saw him go in there. He's got to be in there. And he's like, man, he's not in there. I'm telling you, he's not in there. So they're worried that he may stumbled off and had a heart attack or something yeah. or being gone back to the truck. So the guy that wrote to me said he, he remembers going to the outhouse to check the outhouse. And he remembers touching the grain. He felt the wood grain of the door handle in his hands. And that's the last thing he remembered. And He was out. And then he had no dreams, has no memories, but he opened his eyes and he's inside the trailer. And it's just breaking dawn. And he's looking up at these old, old ceiling tiles and uh he had slept in the 
in the uh, in the trailer, and uh, they wake up Melvin. Melvin, luckily, is back on the couch somehow, and he's fine. And uh, he wants to know how how the pig roast go, boys. And uh, they ran outside, and there was because the guy you got like you got a pig. They were barbecuing mm-hmm. a pig, and here's this pig on a roast, and it's it's all burned underneath and just gray and ugly on top because they they turn it. They were. They were gone. <laughs> they were gone. Yeah. yeah. They were otherwise occupied. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, and uh, so they went, Yeah. And, you know, and everybody, nobody talked about it. You know, nobody debriefed, just like Toby and I, we didn't talk about it. You know, these guys didn't debrief. They got in the, they got in the big truck and headed back and, uh, um, you know, one guy listens to music the whole time. The other guy that he says thinks is playing like he's asleep and th- there's no conversation, you know, and it's just awkward. And they said, if he said it felt awkward and they got back and then they went back to the firehouse, you know, after they had another day or two off and they went back to the firehouse, but he said it was never the same. He said that he didn't. They didn't hang out together anymore. The one guy requested a, a Melvin, the older guy, retired. Uh, one of the other guys moved to another uh, firehouse. One of the other guys quit and moved to Little Rock, Arkansas, to drive an ambulance. And the whole band just broke up and just all went in different directions. So one kid opened a restaurant. Uh, and uh, there was just no hanging out anymore. Compare the I mean, stories. Okay. How many stories have you heard? Is that for the, the story you just told me, your story, the Allagash story? You know, how many other people ha- who, you know, went into this buddies, very close friends, and then came out and they just kind of like, they were strangers and more, you know, for lack of a better word. I got, when I wrote this, I got so many stories like that. It just seemed like that was a common theme. And when I laid out those lists of commonalities, that's one of the commonalities. Mm-hmm. I just called it the band breaks up and uh, even and it doesn't like if let's say a family, you know, family of five witnesses something. I've got an example or two of those in there. Family of five witnesses something. They see something really weird in the sky, um, something a little more intimate than just a saucer darting across the sky. They see something really odd. Mm-hmm. Um, they won't talk about it. Just like my sister wouldn't talk about you know, how it happened to me when uh, when I was young. And the, the family members won't talk about it. This one guy said, he said, yeah, he said, I don't understand it. We never talked about it. And he said, I, I never thought about it. And it was 20 years later. And, you know, Uncle Joe or somebody at Thanksgiving dinner brings it up and says, hey, do you guys remember when we saw that spaceship? Mm-hmm. And he said, everyone felt stunned. He said, I, I, I felt just stunned. I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And um, some of the people said, no, I don't remember. I don't remember that well. Mm-hmm. Nobody said, oh, yeah, yeah. How about that? What did we, what did we see? None of that. None of that. Mm-hmm. So at this point, you and Toby are driving like mad back home. And you had said that you had had retinal burns. So were you we driving? Did. Yeah. How did you I guys see? 
All right. It was hard to see. It was hard because, you know, when the sun came up, I was so photophobic. Mm-hmm. Um, and But Toby, whatever they did to me, they gave this poor guy a double dose because he was just sick. Uh, and he was like, he wasn't a great big guy. I got this great big bench seat in the front of my Impala, and he's kind of curled up into a ball. And I'm like, man, you know, you got the whole back seat you can stretch out in. And he's like, I don't want to move. I'm good. Right. And, uh, you know, we the only thing that we that we spoke about was we agreed that we wouldn't tell no one that we saw a UFO because we knew that that put us on a psych ward. So you guys made that pact right there not to say we anything. Did. Yeah. I did. Yeah. So here you guys driving with bad vision. You guys are you're in pain. You're dehydrated. You're just you're you're a mess and you're just breaknecking it to to get home. Did you guys get home or did you go to the hospital uh, right away? Well, we, we went to the hospital as soon as we got home. Our wives took us because we were we were we were sick. We were acutely dehydrated. We did stop for gas at the first place that we saw open. And there was a little place that just serviced locals, I'm sure. Uh, you know, I haven't been back, but I'm sure the area around that is built up now. Um, mm-hmm. But it was just forest. It was just forest back then, you know, an occasional cornfield or soybeans. And that's mm-hmm. so we got uh, it wasn't even a little town. It's just like a little truck stop and uh, with gas and like a little store. And I stopped. I ran to the John and. uh of course, it was locked, and I had to go in and get, get a key from the old man behind the counter. Mm. You know, and Toby's standing in line to, to use the bathroom, too. I go in. Um, yeah, they got this key on a piece of two-by-four about that long. I was mm-hmm. like, man, they must have a tr- problem with people running away with the key or something. Mm-hmm. But, I know. Uh, <laughs> so I got inside, mm-hmm. and I put my hands under this dirty faucet and I'm just drinking and drinking and drinking all I can hold. And, uh, I could not quench my thirst. And that's when I pulled up my t-shirt and I could see that I had the sunburn all over me. And it was just weird. My skin was beet red. I never blistered. I never peeled. Uh, and it was really tender to the touch. Um, the flash burns to my eyes and the thirst, those were the three things that really hurt us. So uh, I gave Toby, the, I went out, I opened the door, and here's Toby leaning up, leaning against the pole, and he looks like he's about to fall over. And uh, I handed him the key, and I went inside the store, and the store was an interesting experience. I'm glad I wrote this down, and, and that I journaled this. Um, the guy behind the counter was like straight out of a, out of a John Deere tractor catalog. You know, he was about mm-hmm. 80 years old. Uh, he had, on, you know, the plaid flannel shirt and uh, overalls, worn overalls. And uh, was he wearing the John, John Deere hat? <laughs> no, but, you know, he should have been. He should have been. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> he should have been. But that's the only thing that was missing, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we must have looked like hell because, you know, I went and I picked up a six pack of... Uh, orange soda to drink and uh, Toby comes stumbling in the door and he grabs a gallon uh, container like a milk jug full of grape drink and I walk up and we set our stuff down on the counter and I start fumbling for some money and 
the, the old man kind of pulls his glasses down like this and looks us over. And he says, and actually I was kind of touched by this. He says, now it ain't none of my business, but what the hell are you fellers been into? And I, and I I told him the truth. I said, I don't know. We went to bed sick and we woke up sick. And he said, you boys better get someplace where you can get you some help. He says, you want to use my phone? Go ahead. You can use my phone. And I said, no, nah, we're just headed to the air base. We're just a few hours away. We'll be okay. Um, but I was very touched by his kindness. Yeah. You know, I thought that was very nice. You could see you guys struggling. Yeah. So we, we, uh, yeah, I know we look, we look, we look bad, you know, we yeah. got home and I, I dropped Toby off. Toby lived four blocks from me. I dropped him off at his home. And, uh, I mean, he left his cooler, his backpack, the, the tent, everything that we took, we left with us. I took a wallet and, uh, my car keys. I think he took his wallet and a stupid flashlight that hardly worked. And, um, I just said, see ya. And. Mm -hmm shut the door, went home, and we both went to the hospital. The hospital was an interesting thing. And you got to remember, we worked at the hospital squadron. So these were all our friends. They were all people that we knew. Mm -hmm. And they, um, I think, you know, medical people take care of their own. Mm -hmm. uh, we were treated really, really well. Um, but there were some strange things. And, and I found out that they're not so strange. And that was the separating the two of us. Um, I was given orders. I, I had the, the thorough medical exam I've ever had in my life. And I knew the doctor and, you know, they drew tons of blood. They had two IVs running in me trying to get me hydrated. And, um, this toward the end of the exam, four guys came into the exam room. It was the hospital commander who I knew very well, the base commander who I, I knew of, but didn't, didn't know. And then two guys in civilian clothes, I don't know who they were. Uh, so the four of them stepped in the, the exam room and asked the doctor to excuse himself. And he said, yeah, I'm about wrapped up here. And he went out and shut the door. Um, and it had a real official vibe to it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the hospital commander was the only one who spoke. And he said, Sergeant Lovelace should have no contact with Sergeant Tobias. That means you can't speak with him. You can't send him a letter. You can't communicate with him through any third party. You know, on and on and on. If you run into him at the grocery store, you're to turn around and immediately walk in the opposite direction. And, uh, you know, you can't talk to him on the telephone. I mean, it's just on and on and on. It was a no contact order. Um, and he said, that's an order, Sergeant. And if you disobey my order, there'll be consequences. Do you understand? And I said, yes, sir, because I did under, I understood consequences. Uh -huh. I knew there could be consequences for disobeying an order. The reason for the order, I, I didn't know. Uh, but I was in such a weird place. I was in such a weird frame of mind. I didn't want anything to do with the guy anyway. It was fine with me. Yeah. As, you as, think you were just happy to be alive. <laughs> yeah, I was happy to be alive. He had, you guys finally get to the hospital. They admit you. Did they start, since these people are your friends, did they were like, what happened to you? And what did oh, you yeah. say? Oh, God, yes. Everybody wanted to know what happened to us. You know, the doctor who I knew well, there were actually two doctors working with me. The one, the one guy I knew better uh, said, 
man, what did you do? Did you take all your clothes off? How did you get burned? He said, he said, the only way you could explain this burn would be as if you were nude on a rotisserie <laughs> and someone just kept uh, turning you. Because yeah. I, I was burned. I had the same burn on the soles of my feet. I mean, under my arms. I mean, everywhere. Yeah. And, you, look, uh, you were like barbecued. Yeah. Slow roasted. And, uh, <laughs> that, <laughs> that perplexed them. It did. Wow. Because uh, the one guy noticed that whatever had burned me, I was burned the same behind my ears. And he thought that was really odd. Um, and then he started looking and cause I had a thick head of hair back in the day <laughs> and my scalp was burned through your hair, through my hair, my scalp was burned. How the heck? So, you know, I, I think it was radiation or something. Yeah. You know, the inside of this thing was lit up like crazy. Um, and if you're naked. Have... Yeah. Yeah, there's lights everywhere. It's like you're in a giant tanning booth, maybe. Yeah, it kind of had that feel to it. It did. The lights in there did hurt my eyes after a while. They did. So I, I, that's what I attribute the flash burns to. So basically they, they were, they were in a panic and they were like, what that happened? What did you say? I, I don't know. You just told them you didn't know. I told them I didn't know. I told them the story that Toby and I agreed upon. That was, and you know, we kind of had an ethical issue because neither one of us wanted to lie. I mean, we were, we were, I mean, very straight and, mm -hmm. and uh, we agreed that we'd say that we went to bed feeling funny and woke up sick as dogs. And uh, that was, that's a true statement. So that was our story, and we stuck to it. At least I think we stuck to it. I don't. I can't say for sure what Toby said. Um, you guys each had a private room. I think that's interesting how they separated you guys right away. Oh, you know, yeah. And and Robert Hastings, who wrote U Nukes and UFOs and Nukes, famous book, uh, fifteen years ago, and he was part of the famous press uh, press club briefing in two thousand and something, two thousand and one. I'm embarrassed to say I don't remember when it was. Um, but uh, he, he did a report to Congress. I mean, he has interviewed thousands, I mean, literally thousands of veterans who were on nuclear bases. Like I was, I, the base I was on was nuclear. It had nuclear armed B-52s and a squadron of, of um, Minutemen II ICBM missiles uh, kind of spread out all over the countryside in these little launch control facilities. And... Uh, you know, they pulled all those out. All the missiles left about 1995. And uh, the B-52s eventually left when the B-2 bombers moved in there. That, that Whiteman Air Force Base is still there, and it's home to the B-2 bombers now. So, um, yeah, so I got in my private room, and they kept the lights turned off, which was really a blessing because mm -hmm. I was photophobic. And uh, I was feeling physically, I was feeling better because I was rehydrated on the IVs, um, but I still had pain from this sunburn or whatever it was. And, you know, they come in every four hours and put like a salve, a little tube of salve, put a line of it in my eyes. And um, my eyes were getting better by the second day. And um, on the second evening, I knew I'd be going home the third day that next morning. My, um, 
I knew her the night the, the night nurse, for lack of better words, came in to give me an injection because they gave me an injection for pain and helped me sleep too. Uh, came in around nine o'clock, and as she opened the door and stepped in, these two guys in blue business suits followed her and stepped in. And you know these guys were cops. I mean, I could just tell they were cops. I mean, I hadn't had a lot of experience with the police, um, you know, at age 22. But, mm-hmm. you know, these guys walk in and they got kind of that swagger and they got their suit coats open and you can see a shoulder holster. You know, the guys are cops. Mm-hmm. Um, and he came in and uh, the nurse had my injection in her hand. And the older there were two there, there were two OSI agents. Um, I should explain what OSI is. Uh, OSI stands for Office of Special Investigations. The Air Force has a security police division. And then as a sub part of that, of that security police uh, entity, there is an Office of Special Investigations. And that's kind of the investigative branch of the Air Force. It's kind of like what NCIS is to the Navy. Mm, okay. So these guys were detectives. They weren't. They weren't policemen. They were. They were more detectives, because mm-hmm. uh, there's a distinction. And the one guy uh, looked to be about fifty. Uh, they showed me their IDs. Um, oh, the one guy said the, the the one guy did all the talking. That was the major guy who's about fifty, short guy. And he says to the nurse before she can give me my shot. If that's going to sedate Sergeant Lovelace, it's going to have to wait because we're going to ask him some questions and shut the door on your way out. And he said it real rude. And I thought, man, you know, that's not it's not necessary, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she went out of the door and she shut the door in back of her and. Uh, with the door shut. These two guys grabbed chairs and pulled them next to the head of my bed. And my bed wasn't electric. It was crank up back then. Mm-hmm. So the, the taller guy, the guy that was a captain, lower in rank than the other guy, uh, he was younger, maybe early 30s. The other guy was 50. The, the uh, captain went down and cranked up the head of my bed so that I was sitting bolt upright. And they cleaned off my side table and rolled it underneath me. So I had my arms like this. And uh, they sat on either side of me with a chair. The captain took notes, but the major did all the talking. And he said, and he had this weird Southern accent, uh, very much like Calvin Parker. If you've ever heard Calvin speak, Mm -hmm. he said, you know, well, first of all, he read me my rights under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, and that scared the heck out of me because I, I, I thought, I'm being read my rights. What am I accused of? Mm-hmm. And my first, you know, my first thought was that we burned down the forest. That was my first thought was that we didn't we didn't kill the campfire all the way. It got out of control, and you know, um, that was the only thing I could think of because uh, I didn't think a trespass into this place would have warranted. Uh, involvement by the OSI. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they have bigger fish to fry than that. Right. Um, and I mean, I'm sure this is an assumption on my part, but I think it's a good one because of what the what the guy said to me. The, the OSI agent said to me, he says, 
you know, the park rangers found your little campsite down there, and it looks like you're planning on going back. And I said, no, sir, we were just sick, and we didn't care about a $10 Kmart tent. And he said, well, you didn't care about your buddy's cooler or his backpack that had his name and address in it? That's how they found us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, you left everything there. You left military property there. You left these hot, the blankets that belong to this hospital. That's not your property. And I thought, oh, God, you know. And I still don't know what, the, what I'm accused of, mm-hmm. if anything. But, you know, having worked as a prosecutor for a while, I, in retrospect, I recognize this kind of for what it is. And I think it was mostly theater. I really do. Yeah, put a little fear in you. Put the fear in me. Let me know who was in charge. Um, you know, uh, all that was left was for the captain to speak up and be the good guy, you know, but mm-hmm. we didn't get that far. And uh, the nurse came back after about 30 minutes and um, she said, doctor wants him to have the shot. And the OSA agent's like, well, we're about done here. We'll just wrap up. So she gives me the shot. The captain packs up and leaves. The major is taking his time packing his briefcase and he zips it up and he shuts the door. And my head of the bed was near the door so he could have his hand against the door and lean over and whisper in my ear. And he did, he leaned over and he whispered in my ear and he said, son, I know and you know, you two knuckleheads stumbled onto something when you were out there and I think you know what I mean. And I didn't answer him because I didn't know how to answer him. And then he asked again, and he said, oh, I know you know what I mean, and I just want to know how many pictures you took of it. And I blurted out without thinking, sir, I never took a single picture. And that was, that was an admission. He mm-hmm. just, you know, that was, that was the object of the exercise. He just smiled and said, well, I just need your film. I said, sir, I don't have any film. And he said, you know, and this, with this tough guy face on, he said, I don't believe you. Um, turned around and walked out. Mm. So, you know, I, I, their fear was that I'd taken a 36 exposure roll of film of this thing. And God, I wish I had, of course. But I think that was the whole, that was the whole reason for the OSI's involvement. Was that, yeah, was that well, cool? I mean... Here they are keeping this, for like you know, lack of a better term, I like to call it the alien landing pad, a secret. There's got to be some sort of uh, story around it for them to guard it so much. You know what I mean? There's got to be a story. There's got to be further. There's got to be something that they're protecting, and then so here, yeah, there's got to be something they're protecting and preserving. And then, like I told you last week, I, I, I have a feeling they saw something come over and then they found your stuff. So all those points kind of met and then they were kind of like, oh, these guys here were here. Here's their stuff. We saw something. It, you know, that's that's how it goes in my head. Like it, that had to be it. They had to have seen something on radar. They had to they had to have seen something. And you guys were here. They found your stuff and it was just like, boom. And then they kind of put two and two together and thought, oh, they were out there taking pictures of this. Let's get that before they start publishing stuff. 
And then every then everyone every not every every UFO person is going to come out here and want to be in this spot. That's you know, or or create hysteria. Maybe maybe that's what they were thinking. I don't know. Well, you know, well no, I, th- I think you're on the right path. I mean, Robert Hastings said that he said that the you know if you're on active duty and two people see something like that, it's standard procedure to break them up. I mean that you, you know you'll get one of you'll get transferred. Toby got transferred to Japan at light speed, and you know we. Mm-hmm. Busted up, and uh, that's, that's standard operating procedure. So, I think they have a lot more of this going on than than we'll ever know. I mean, there's a lot of, pe- you know, I think there's a lot of people out there that have had experiences. I mean, three quarters of the people that wrote to me told me they hadn't told another soul, living soul about this. What happened to them? So, there's got to be just lots of people out there. Well, you know, I've talked to I've talked to quite a few people over the years. Um, I, I never shared my story, but I, I talked to a few other people and they they said, oh, yeah, I, I saw something one time. And and I'm like, really, have you said anything to anybody? And they go, no. But I like, why? Why haven't you? Why haven't you said anything? And they go, I don't know. But so, uh, you know, here you are. This guy is saying, I don't believe you. You got pictures. And what did you do at this point? You're like, take the damn camera. I don't care. You know. Oh, yeah. Well, you know what? I, well, this Toby and I are laying there on these stupid air mattresses. Toby has a camera in his bag, and it's a foot away from him. And neither one of us thought to take a picture. And I think that's, that's, not, that's not normal. Mm-hmm. You know? And I've had people you know, send me emails saying, you know, I saw this crazy thing. It never crossed my mind to get my cell phone out. Mm-hmm. Or by the time I got my cell phone out, it zipped away at 500 miles an hour, you know. Mm-hmm. Or so, they tried to take a picture and it didn't show up. That was another one. Yeah. Yeah. Showed up blank. That was really. Uh, or another. Yeah. Or another interesting thing uh, is that they, they take their camera out and then they hear, don't take a picture of this. Or you're not supposed I to be heard seeing two this. People tell me that. I've heard two people tell me that, that they heard audibly in their head. I shouldn't say audibly, maybe telepathically. Telepathically, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. They knew it wasn't their thought. But here Toby had this camera, never took a picture. You guys were just running for your lives pretty much at this point you know you get in the car you're taken off you leave the camera behind so they they obviously have the camera and of course back then it takes forever to you know you know um to get the the pictures from the exposures and whatnot so um you're just like you're not gonna find anything pretty much to this guy you didn't care you just wanted to not die that's you know you're laying in the hospital you're just glad to be alive and you're just like whatever and That's uh, the of the exercise. at this point, I didn't care. You know, I mean, I was a little angry at E.T., but, uh, <laughs> you know, I. Uh, I don't know, you know, I, I wonder about what the purpose is, what is their agenda? Why are they doing this to us? You know, um, and I just. You know, I had this um, encounter aboard the ship. I think I told you about that. The, I felt like the dog in the equation. We had that discussion. Didn't mm-hmm. we? I should tell you that because I think that's real important. When I was uh, standing there with my clothing in my hand, um, I could see these little gray guys all over the place. 
uh, and they were all running around. You know, they were all task oriented. There were I, there were no slackers in in the bunch. There was nobody nobody was taking a smoke break. I mean, everybody was you know on their way to do something. Yeah, they weren't lollygagging. They had a purpose. Like they yeah. each had a little job. Like they're programmed to do that particular thing. I think that's right. Like a beehive. Yeah, and uh, but they were about three feet tall. I think maybe a little a little maybe a little higher, um, a little taller. But this guy walked across my field of vision, and he wasn't gray. He was chalkish pink in complexion. Yeah, chalkish pink. Uh, no discernible ears. Uh, large eyes, but not really exaggerated. They were more like Ray-Ban, but they were black and glossy. And just two nostrils, maybe a bump for a nose. Uh, mine just a very small slit for a mouth. Um, and just a bump where his ear canals were. And he um, had, I don't know if it was thin hair or like patches of discolored skin on top of his head. I couldn't tell. But what happened was I saw him walk across my field of vision. And I followed him with my eyes. And I could tell immediately he was somebody in authority. Because, you know, you can just tell. You mm -hmm. know? You can just tell he had authority while well, walking like he was in authority. And uh, he is to the far, and he didn't look at me, didn't look at us. And he's to the far left of me. And I got my eyes strained to the left as far as they'll go. And I can see him. And just by happenstance, he turned his head at the same time. And we locked eyes. And this guy was in my head. And I don't know any other way to explain it to you, but he was in my head. And it felt like the biggest invasion of privacy I, in my life. It's like he knew my wife. He knew my secrets, my dreams, my hopes, my plans, my family. Uh, it felt like he knew everything about me. And uh, I felt so inadequate. Because this, whatever this thing was, it was 500, it wasn't a human being, but it was 500 rungs up the evolutionary ladder for me. I'll tell you, I felt, I felt. Um, you felt like an insect compared to. I did. You know, the analogy that I use is when, when our kids were little, we had a dog, an English setter, you know, with the big brown eyes. Mm hmm and she would come over all the time while I'm watching TV or reading or whatever and put her head in my lap and I'd reach down and scratch her ears and good girl, how you doing, you know? And uh, she would look up at me with those eyes that just radiate loyalty and trust. And I would look at her and I, I assumed that she could read the, the love and affection in my eyes. And we each, we each knew our respective roles. I mean, I was the alpha in the equation. And she knew she wasn't the alpha. And in this encounter with this being, I wasn't the alpha. I was the dog. Mm 